Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Happy Bloody Mary Friday, everybody. November 1st and one of the great days of the year for parents like myself. The day that you get to comb through your kids' Halloween candy. I got a giant backpack of candy here and you get to steal whatever you like. What do you go for? Is it the Reese's, Snickers, 100 Grand, Butterfingers, Skittles? We'll get into that. Also, the Niners remain undefeated. 8-0, barely this time, though surviving Kyler Murray and the Arizona Cardinals. A lot to get to on this day, including Earl Campbell. Did he say something blatantly racist about white versus black quarterbacks? We'll get into that and the future of the Golden State Warriors in the short and the long term with Curry out for the season, broken left hand. Home and home radio.com sports original. We are brought to you by Zip Recruiter. Check out ZipRecruiter right now. It's ZipRecruiter.com slash enter. A very busy, bloody, merry Friday. We'll talk to Kevin Millar at 8.30 about the World Series, which turned out to be the third lowest rated on record. Stunning, considering I don't remember enjoying a World Series more than this one in the last decade. Do you agree? Let us know your thoughts on that as well as the game of the week in the NFL, the Patriots and the Ravens. Can this historic Patriots defense contain Lamar Jackson? That's the key question. And how good is that defense? They haven't beat anybody yet. The schedule gets a lot tougher now. We'll have hosts from WEEI and 105.7. The fan in Baltimore will hopefully get some smack talk between these two, the national media loving the Baltimore Ravens going into this game. I'm on an island. think this will be a blowout. Changing it up today because Ross Tucker had some complications flying out to Colorado for the Air Force Army game. So my man Joe Shasky did not sleep. Today home and home is coast (laughs) to coast. Joe, you were up last night on 95-7, the game in the Bay Area, you were up doing post game after the Niners win, and yet you are up now with us at 5 a.m. Did you sleep at all? Nah, nah, didn't sleep, but money doesn't sleep, man. You know, greed is good, Gordon Gecko, but uh, these 49ers are on fire right now. Nobody in the Bay Area can sleep. You can't sleep on them. Jimmy Garoppolo, I thought it was his signature game last night in a 49er uniform. This guy has had a five-game winning streak. He now has an eight-game winning streak. We know he got hurt last year, and that just sucked the life out of the organization, the fan base. The compensation package is Nick Bosa, and the way I'm looking at it right now, that's a pretty damn good compensation package. Absolutely. Look, I, I will admit I was not in on Jimmy Garoppolo. I feel as though I have to apologize to the Niners signal caller. I thought he was clearly their weak spot, a game manager and not a guy that could bring them to a Super Bowl. Um, he was a completely different guy than we've seen in recent weeks. 
What changed last night for him? Clearly, Arizona had a strategy, and that was we're going to stuff Tevin Coleman. We're going to stop that ground game. We're going to make Jimmy Garoppolo beat us through the air. What changed all of a sudden for Jimmy? There's a combination of things, to be totally honest with you. You know, Jimmy Garoppolo, last year in his three-game stint where he finally got paid, he, he was awful. He was tentative. He was patting the ball in the pocket. Short, The short throws, the real short throws that he was money on the year prior, he, he was just telegraphing them. And you saw parts of that throughout the first couple of games of the year. But this is a guy coming off a major ACL injury. And to be totally honest... He doesn't have any wide receivers. Now, they swung a big-time deal. And at the time, I didn't think it was a big deal. I thought Emmanuel Sanders, nice receiver, probably better as a two than he is as anybody's one. But it has made the world of a difference because Emmanuel Sanders looks like he's been in this offense for two, three years. I mean, his rapport with Jimmy Garoppolo yeah. was fantastic. And, and also, you know, George Kittle's an absolute gladiator. But when you could take away the tight end, it's difficult when you're throwing to Debo Samuel, who's only played six games in the NFL, and Dante Pettis, who we're not even sure what he is in year two. He looked like a great college punt returner, but as a wide receiver in the NFL, uh, I don't know. And then let's not forget, you know, we're making excuses for Dak Prescott because guys are injured. I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo's without Joe Staley, who's probably the third greatest offensive lineman in 49er history, and, and Mike McGlinchey, who was a top 10 pick uh, as a right tackle and was one of the better right tackles in the game. I know Ross Tucker, who I'm filling in here, would would agree with me. So you're losing weapons every single week because of injuries. Jimmy Garoppolo's confidence was, you know, it was shaky. But if you've been kind of looking between the lines, this guy... He's gotten better every single week. And, and by necessity, he hasn't had to throw and, and really carry this team on his arm. The defense has been unbelievable. The running game has been gouging teams left and right. And so Jimmy's only had to really throw for 175 yards a game. And when you're blowing teams out like they have over, I think they have four blowouts out of the eight wins this year, you don't really need to throw the ball around. So last night, it all came together for him. We saw the guy that... Bill Belichick talked up. We saw the guy that we became enamored with after the five-game stretch when he was throwing to Lewis Murphy and a bunch of no-namers in the five-game stretch in 2017. Jimmy Garoppolo had it rolling last night. The, the shimmy shakes, the, the shoulders, looking off guys, throwing guys open. Uh, Jimmy was spectacular last night. That was next-level quarterback play, and everybody in the Bay Area was waiting just to see it. And now that we've seen it, I think everybody's a believer. Lot to unpack there. Let's start with Jimmy's numbers, 28 to 37, 317 and four touchdowns. I am with you on Emmanuel Sanders, a Bronco fan from Denver. Love the player, but think he is a number two wide receiver. Really the definition of it. Could not believe the chemistry of those two and the confidence that he suddenly brings to that offense. Kyle Shanahan talked about both of those things last night. Here's the Niners head coach. Yeah, he played great today. Um, he made a lot of plays in rhythm and made a lot of off-schedule plays. Uh, they got a great pass rush. They had some real tight coverages. They mixed up a lot of stuff. But um, I thought Jimmy played a hell of a game and um, his best game yet, probably. Was the way was the way he was playing what allowed you to, to go shotgun and empty set on that crucial third down at the end instead of maybe running the ball? Um, I mean, that helps. Uh, that helps him. Um, but, you know, just being down a field goal is more of it. You know, if you're probably down seven. No time else, we would have got it, but they're moving the ball pretty good, and um, thought we had to take our chance there. Um, definitely makes it easier to make that decision with the way it was playing and uh, the way some of the guys were doing in the past game. 
Uh, yes, I mean, he, and watching him, you, you always know he's a pro, um, but I mean, he's even been better than expected, you know, since he's been here, just how unbelievably smart he's been in picking up the offense and being able to go out there that much, and especially here on a short weekend. Um, that game would have been real tough for him without. Is that very important? I mean, it didn't even look like they turned his head and the ball went to the other side. Yeah, that one towards the sideline, I was right by it, so he had to push a little bit extra on it um, to his depth just to get away from Patrick. <laughs> Um, Jimmy let it go early. Uh, I had a clean view of it. I didn't think Emmanuel was going to get his head around right when he did hit him right in the chest. It was impressive. So that's Kyle Shanahan. And by the way, Sanders, seven catches, 112 yards, and the touchdown. Uh, Joe, I, I always feel like Kyle Shanahan will forever be saddled with 28 to 3. That Super what? Bowl score <laughs> until, until he wins the Super Bowl. I, I think he is calling a terrific game plan. I mean, the play calling has been next level, uh, second to none this year. You don't feel like he'll forever be saddled with 28 to three unless he wins a Super Bowl. I mean, do we hold it over Daryl Bevel or Pete Carroll that they didn't hand the ball off to Marshawn Lynch? Do, do do we hold it over all like oh. since when is it the offensive coordinator's fault that the head coach Dan Quinn who looks like his team has quit on him this year three years later like Shanahan was the best thing that ever happened to the Atlanta Falcons and Matt Ryan this is absurd I look I understand where people are coming from uh yeah. but Kyle Shanahan was the reason that team got to that far. Like, Matt Ryan wishes he still had this guy. I understand where you guys are coming from. I think Kyle Shanahan is an unbelievable play caller. I had question marks as far as him leading men. Like, there's no doubt about it. I had questions on that. There's more to a head coach than just being a great play caller. But I think this year, more than any, he is playing complimentary football on both sides of the ball. But his feel for the game, the way he sets plays up, uh, he's been really critical of Jimmy Garoppolo, and I love that because there's nothing worse than when you coddle a young quarterback because that's what Jimmy is. I know people say, well, he's been sitting under ba Brady and Belichick, but the guy has less than 16 or 17 NFL starts. You got to treat him like a second-year quarterback, and sometimes you got to yell at a guy on the sidelines. Jimmy, Kyle, they've both been humiliated absolutely humiliated by the NFL Kyle by getting fired by the Washington Redskins. And then obviously the 28 to three debacle, which everybody holds over his head. And then Jimmy Garoppolo, <laughs> you know, getting hurt last year. I think that when yeah. you get hurt and you get humbled, that changes you. You're seeing it with Baker Mayfield right now. Good luck, Baker Mayfield. Now's when the real NFL starts. Once you've been humbled, how do you respond? And so I think that Kyle Shanahan is, <laughs> He's, he's super petty when it comes to his beefs, but the way that this guy goes out and just delivers a game plan, his game time calling, the feel for what the defense is going to do, understanding what his players can do on the field, like that's the hallmark of Bill Walsh. You know, let me maximize what a, what a guy's skill is. Let me minimize what they can't do. Kyle's done a fantastic job with the limited pieces that they have. Matt Breida, we haven't even, Matt Breida was an undrafted running back out of Georgia Southern. He was spectacular last night. Again, this yeah. guy, all he's going to do is churn out a 1,000 yards. No one even heard of this guy before this year. So I, I, I'm a big believer in Kyle Shanahan, and he, we want, he won me over, and I, I've been super critical of him. Yeah, Matt Breida was outstanding on a night where Tevin Coleman was stuffed from the very start of the game. Uh, Tevin Coleman probably, once he watches that game tape, will just eat himself alive for the screen pass he dropped. It looked like... 
Tevin Coleman might have gone the distance. He had a cavalry out in front of him. Uh, they hang on, but that's a that's a play he will want back. Now an interesting <laughs> question comes out of this game about Jimmy Garoppolo. And you love the swagger of this guy. Great-looking dude, carries himself with uh, just an air of invincibility. And afterward, the post-game interview with Aaron Andrews on the field raised a couple of eyebrows. Let's listen to what happened. Kyle Shanahan telling us this week, each week, you're getting better and better. What was clicking tonight for you? You know, I think, uh, like like you said, the receivers, I mean, those guys just, their body language, how they are at the top of routes, they beat guys, and, I mean, it makes it easy for me. So when you got skill position guys like that that are just winning on routes, it, it's awesome. And a couple of huge third downs for you, and, and one of those guys helping you out, Emmanuel Sanders, who you told us this week, came along quicker than you thought. What about tonight? Yeah, he, uh, you know, he picks it up quick. He's a vet. And he's a pro, you know, so he just, uh, I don't know, it's awesome having a guy like that. And then you got credit the guys up front to give us time to be able to throw those types of routes. So it's it's a big team effort. 8 no. How does that feel? Feels great, baby. <laughs> Happy, Halloween. <laughs> Happy Halloween right back at you. Thanks so much. Definitely. No problem. Okay, so that's how it sounded with Jimmy G and Aaron Andrews on the field. I think it helps for those of you that were watching the game as you and I were, Joe. I felt right away like there was some <laughs> real swagger in that interview. Uh, you say he uses that baby from time to time. Did you feel like he was kind of dropping his game on Aaron Andrews? Because I felt that way. I don't know Jimmy the way you do out in the Bay Area. Let me tell you, Jimmy Garoppolo, outside of Clay Thompson, is living his best life here in the Bay Area. Everybody yeah. loves Jimmy Garoppolo. My wife thinks he's the most handsome individual on the planet. Everybody does. Now, he had the porn star thing a couple of off-seasons ago. Yeah. And I'm going to be honest, I was not big on that. I didn't like the look. I, I expect my quarterback to be presidential. So I was not big on the whole porn star thing. It was just, it was just a really bad look. Really, really bad look. But Jimmy Garoppolo threw his fifth touchdown after the game. I mean, him throwing that lob up to Aaron Andrews, that was just absolutely hilarious. And yes, he does do the baby thing a lot where <laughs> he'll be like, you know, we're just trying to win, baby. But it looked like he gave a little wink too in there. And dude, that guy's super savvy. You know, you got to understand 49er fans have a lot of history with Aaron Andrews. Richard Sherman, okay? Richard Sherman was talking to Aaron Andrews when he chewed out Michael Crabtree right after the NFC Championship game. And so, you know, whenever you bring up Aaron Andrews at a 49er game, it evokes emotion from 49er fans, but uh, but this one was a better one. Look, Dave, you want to know something? Jimmy Garoppolo yeah. is the first 49er quarterback since 2000, 20 freaking years, since Jeff Garcia to throw for 300 yards and throw for four touchdowns. This is the quarterback era, the pass-happy era. They have sucked for 11 out of those 18 years. I mean, I'm talking like dreadful. And they haven't had one quarterback throw for four meaningless touchdowns and 300 yards. That's how inept the 49ers are at throwing the ball. Like they're allergic to the forward pass over the last 20 years. And so that's why everybody's losing their mind right now. It was the last link to could this team get over the top and Jimmy Garoppolo on the field, off the field, whether we're talking about how handsome the guy is, he could do no wrong right now. He's a good looking dude, man. I would definitely put him. Is he number one? Is he the best looking dude in the NFL? Yeah, I think he is. Is he your number one draft pick when it comes to the best looking dude in the NFL right now? I think that he is. I mean, Tom Brady's always yeah. going to be there. There's no question yeah. about that. And that's and that's kind of, you know, he's kind of always been in his shadow. But Jimmy is, I mean, he's the guy's stunning. We call him Superman. I mean, the guy literally looks like Clark Kent. He, he's 
And he, he's just, uh, he, he's unbelievable. When you're the quarterback of the 49ers, you know, we're talking about a blue blood franchise, one of the biggest, you know, entities on the West Coast, one of the original winners. Uh, these guys, when they're rolling and humming, the quarterback of the 49ers is as big of a position. You might as well be the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys in California. I mean, they're the biggest entity out here by far. When they're winning, they're the biggest of the big. And Jimmy Garoppolo is at the forefront of that. So, so it doesn't even compare out there in terms of the the gender, the, the volume of calls and passion. I, I just assumed it was a Golden State Warriors town, even if the Niners were pretty good. So is it even close in terms of the passion, in terms of the, the calls you guys take down out there at 95-7? Well, you got to understand that the Golden State Warriors are the only team in the Bay Area where both sides of the Bay Area root for. So you split up the fan base between the A's and the Giants. You split up the fan base between the Raiders and the, the 49ers. And so the Warriors have always been universally embraced by everyone. And Steph Curry's the golden child. I mean, you want to talk about somebody that not one person has anything negative to say, it's Steph Curry. But the 49ers, they get numbers like no other. Football's king, man. You, you've seen the baseball numbers uh, across the country. You've seen basketball numbers across the country, whether we're talking about viewership or just impressions on the social media stuff. Uh, football's king. And, and I would say when the 49ers are humming, there are no bigger brand in sports in the Northern California area than the San Francisco 49ers. They're equivalent to the Lakers. They're equivalent to the Cowboys in Texas, the Yankees up in the Northeast. I mean, they are what rolls because really you had three, four generations of fans that embraced the greatness. And when LA didn't have a team, all the people in Southern California embraced the 49ers during the hardball run. We just had a game against the Rams and the entire Coliseum was filled with 49er fans. And, and it's kind of ironic because they built Levi Stadium. That's the stadium up here in, San, in uh, Santa Clara. And for the last five years when they've sucked, we've said, oh man, they're playing 16 road games. Well, now that they're winning, it feels like they have 16 home games because every single stadium yeah. they've gone to, there have been the majority of people in the stands wearing red and gold. It's it's a phenomenon right now, and it's catching steam. A couple of things before we move on from this game. Can't help but wonder how it might have played out differently had Cliff Kingsbury not called that unfortunate timeout. For those of you who didn't see the game, late in the second half, uh, Niners going stuffed on fourth down at the goal line. They try to run it right up the middle, but it turns out Kingsbury had called a timeout. That allows the Niners to rethink the play call, and that's when they threw the touchdown to Emmanuel Sanders. A huge moment in that game, considering they only won by three points. Take that touchdown away. This could be a very different story this morning, Joe, and especially when you consider the Niners' defense, which is certainly an outstanding unit, first or second best in the league. They had allowed 23 points combined in the four games prior they allow 25 uh, last night. So do you feel any differently about that defense that's now given up, uh, gives up 23 to Arizona? Oh, uh, we, uh, we had a little issue there with my man, Joe Shasky, 95-7. We're going to work on reestablishing his signal, but let's get some, uh, some post-game reaction from the members of that Niners defense. Here's Richard Sherman. 
you know, it's humbling. It's humbling for the defense. You know, we need we need to be humble. That was a humbling game. You need to be humbled on all levels, and I think there's accountability on all levels. And and we'll watch the tape, and we'll we'll watch it critically, and everybody will watch it, um, and and judge themselves critically. And I'm sure, because um, we got to play like that. That's not championship football. I, I meant exactly what I said. Nothing, nothing. They didn't do anything that was really difficult. Quarterback ran from time to time. We missed plays. You know, we missed tackles. You know, we, we blew assignments. We, 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 we turned back when we should have spilled. Um, you know, some mistakes you can't make. Um, we missed tackles. Missed tackle on uh, whatever, however long that run was. You know, I missed the tackle. Uh, E-man, the safeties. You know, we all, somebody got to get them down. And uh, you can't win like that. You can't, you can't, that's not winning football. Thank goodness our offense played, played great and they did a phenomenal job. And we're thankful for, for Jimmy G and, and Kyle and, and school and all those guys deserve a ton of credit, you know, um, for what they did today. So that's Richard Sherman on this outstanding Niners defense that looked beatable for one time this year, allowing the 25 points to Arizona. In particular, can't be happy about the Andy Isabella touchdown. That was Kyler to Isabella who then just took off and torched the Niners secondary, an 88-yard touchdown catch. This is a guy who had two catches, two catches coming into this game, and he scorched them. Isabella looks like a guy they're going to have to get the ball to more. Uh, Joe, you're back with us now after a little connection issue. Do you feel any differently about this defense now that they allowed 25 to Kyler Murray and the Cardinals? Actually, I was really impressed with Cliff Kingsbury. I thought that he understood how to slow down this 49er defense. First off, he he did not allow them to substitute. He had them in that fast-paced, up-tempo offense. I thought he understood how to get the ball out quickly. You know, the 49ers really haven't been asked to tackle in space a whole lot. They've been doing a great job gang tackling. But I think one of the hidden nuances of this one is that Quan Alexander got hurt in the second half. And Quan Alexander got ejected in game one against Tampa Bay. They got gashed in the run game in that particular game. They allowed Godwin and, and Jameis Winston to get a little bit of momentum. And then he came back and they've been really solid for like six games. Well, he gets hurt again in the second half of this game. And I don't think it was a coincidence that Kenyon Drake started to go off in the screen game and in the run game. And then that was just one of those plays where Mosley can't gamble. I, he tried to gamble and make a big pick. You're up 11 points right there. The worst thing you could possibly do is give up a 90-yard touchdown. And tackling has not really been an issue, but the angle by Richard Sherman there was just, oh, my gosh, what are you doing? And Jimmy Ward, who before this season has been much maligned, he took a terrible out, a route on that one as well. You just can't give that up. But Cliff Kingsbury, I was really impressed with him. You know, I – Everybody thinks that a, a head coach is a finished product when they come to whatever situation they're in. Andy Reid's been coaching for like 35, 40 years. He's 60-something years old. Pete Carroll, the same thing. Belichick, Sean Payton, been doing it forever. Well, what's Cliff Kingsbury in his 40s? Like, this is his first NFL season. He's going to get better. And I had major question marks on him. But calling that timeout right there, he's going to regret that. I thought it was bigger stones and cojones from Kyle Shanahan to after getting stuffed, instead of taking the three, going for it again, and with four seconds to go on the clock on fourth down, and you throw the ball, uh, that was unbelievable. I had a bigger issue with the challenge in the fourth quarter from Cliff Kingsbury because Tevin Coleman's yeah. going out of bounds. You got two timeouts. 
Uh, the 49ers are probably going to run the ball there. You need to save your timeouts. That was just a wasted challenge play. You had the two-minute uh, timeout there. You know, time management. How do these guys not have a time management guru in their ear at all times? That That's the part that baffles me. Yeah, the game decisions are something Kingsbury's going to have to improve at. The challenge was a bad one in that it was pretty clear right away that at the very least there was no angle to give you confidence that he stepped out of bounds there. That did seem like a strange challenge. He's made some calls that have opened himself up to criticism. He went for it last week on fourth down at their 30. It failed. Saints went on to roll. Kingsbury is going to have to learn from that. Joe, you mentioned Kenyon Drake. And one of the great things about the NFL is how one week can make you feel differently about a quarterback in the case of Jimmy Garoppolo, a defense in the case of the Niners. It also made me feel differently about tanking. I'm all in on what the Miami Dolphins are doing because, quite frankly, you can't be mediocre in this league. you got to be at the bottom. you got to completely rebuild the way the Houston Astros did in baseball. But seeing the way Kenyon Drake played last night, I couldn't help but say to myself, maybe I'm not all in on the way the Dolphins are tanking by getting rid of what looks like some pretty damn good football players. Remember, they traded away Laramie Tunsil. They traded away Kenny Stills. They traded away Minka Fitzpatrick. And yes, they've acquired, they now have nine picks in the first and second round of the next two years and $100 million in cap space. But Kenyon Drake looked like a rocket last night. 160 total yards and a touchdown. If you're going to rebuild, you're going to need talented young football players like Kenyon Drake. Do you feel differently about tanking given how competent, how good of football players they have now shipped away? It's going to take more than a year, two years. It might take five to completely rebuild that roster. Man, tanking is such a complicated question because, look, my Golden State Warriors are having this question thrown at them right now. Uh, everyone's saying, you got to tank. What happened to competing? What happened to being an athlete and going out there and as an organization and having a standard? Steph Curry, we talk about how great Steph Curry is. He was the seventh pick overall in the draft. Uh, Clay Thompson, 11th pick overall. Jimmy Garoppolo, the 49ers' entire franchise changed when they made a trade two years ago today to get Jimmy Garoppolo, a high second round pick. Now, they had the number two overall pick, completely whiffed on it, traded back to give uh, Mitchell Trubisky and the Chicago Bears a chance to, to, to unite, and they took Solomon Thomas. Absolute whiff, okay? The following year, they took McGlinchey, the 10th overall pick. That was a really good pick. And then last year, number two overall, they take Nick Bosa. But the variance from Nick Bosa to Solomon Thomas, it, to me, it's such a crapshoot. I don't believe in tanking. I understand theoretically, philosophically what you're saying, but from a fan base, you can't charge the prices that these organizations are charging to, to fans to just suck. You, you, you're losing yeah. out on generations of fans because we see this with the Oakland Raiders. I saw this with my 49ers. I've got nieces and nephews. They don't wait around for the team to be good. They're going to go hop on the Patriot bandwagon. They're going to go hop on the Dallas Cowboy bandwagon or whoever's winning at the time. I understand in theory how tanking works, but you have to hit the draft picks and you have to have a culture around that draft pick that's going to enable them to flourish. Look at Cleveland right now. You, you think that Freddie Kitchens is the right guy for the job to make sure that Baker Mayfield flourishes? And they've got talent everywhere. So, like, in theory, tanking is great. And I understand where the Dolphins were. They were in 
like sports purgatory, seven and nine, nine and seven. We're stuck with Tannehill. Like, I understand that. But at some point, my God, you, you got to start keeping people and you have to start building around everyone. And you have to just stick with what you have. And that's that's where the Niners got off track. They, they went four coaches in four years. They were drafting guys for different schemes, and they never could get the continuity. Now that you gave Shanahan a six-year deal, you gave John Lynch, you got to be a little patient. You got to be patient, and it's really hard because it's the instant gratification era. I'm, I'm guilty of this. I know fans are guilty of this. But at some point, you can't charge $20,000 for a PSL. You can't charge thousands and thousands of dollars for season tickets and expect your consumer to continue to show up when you suck out loud. Like, there's just too much going on. There's too much that, that's vying for my time. I mean, Star Wars movies are coming out right now. Do I want to take my kids to go see the Star Wars movie where I know I'm going to have a good time or go to a Dolphin game where they're going to be down 40 points at halftime? I mean, you tell me where you're spending your money. Yeah, that rebuild looks like I, – I believed in it initially, but you're going to need a guy like Drake. You're going to need a guy like Tunsil. It may take too long, and to your point, folks in South Beach got a lot other things to do. Good to have Joe Shasky with us. No sleep, but tons of energy. We'll explain to you later on why his nickname is The Butcher in just a bit. But first, hiring – well, not just butchers, but it can be a slow process. Cafe Altura's COO, Dylan Miskowitz, needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience, invites them to apply to your job so you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed with how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. That's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. Results like that, no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is so effective. For businesses of all sizes, try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address. It's ZipRecruiter.com slash enter ZipRecruiter.com slash E-N-T-E-R. We will explain to you why they call Joe Shasky the butcher boy later in the program. But up next, after a quick break, we're going to bring in our good friend Kevin Millar from the MLB Network, the host of Intentional Talk. To break down the World Series, why was it one of the lowest rated of all time? And was this the greatest come-from-behind story in World Series history? That and let's see if Kev Millar dressed up for Halloween. We're back after a quick break. Reading the Washington Post this morning, the headline reads, The Nationals pulled off the greatest postseason upset run in the history of baseball, and I doubt it's even a close call. Was it really the greatest ever? We'll talk about that with our good friend Kevin Millar. That was intentional talk on MLB Network. Kev, good to see you. Dave Briggs and Joe Shasky with us from 95.7 The Game out there in the Bay Area. We'll get to baseball in a minute, but let's start with Halloween. You rocked a milk suit last night. Please explain. <laughs> yeah, so I got home. I left right from my show, Game 7. Everybody's like, you're not staying for Game 7? Like, no. I'm going to get home for Game 7 with my family down in Austin, Texas. I walk in the door. And my daughter right there goes, Dad, I got your Halloween costume. You're going to be the milk, and I'm the Oreo cookie. I said, 
done. So I put on a pair of white golf pants, some Air Force Ones, and I found me a little old white golf hat. <laughs> Next thing you know, a little Kango style, slipped on the milk. I was milking cookies. <laughs> Dude, I always try to dress up with my kids, and they always deny me. They they want nothing to do with dad. I mean, how old is your daughter, and, and how does a guy work that out? I mean, usually they want nothing to do with us already. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I let her down a little bit because I told her she wanted to go to the World Series. And I said, listen, baby, if it goes back to Houston, which is game six, I promise I'll take you. Because obviously games one and two, I got to go straight to D.C. because with day, days off, we do intentional talk on the field. So, of course, it gets back to game six. I'm like, I had to fly into Houston because we have to do the show that, that what was it, uh, Monday morning, you know, on the day off. And I'm like, she's like, so calls me the day of. She's like, uh, how are you getting me to Houston for the game six? I'm like, okay, um, we're about 190 miles from the airport. I mean, from the stadium. I'm like, listen, babe, I promise you we're going on a daddy-daughter dinner because the weather's a tick hairy. I don't know how to get you there. And uh, and I'll go whatever you want me to go as in Halloween. So she got me a milk outfit, and she was the Orioles and Cookie. We're all on good terms now. I do owe her a dinner probably tomorrow. Uh, we're going to do a daddy-daughter dinner. But, yeah, so I had to agree to be a glass of milk. Dude, you you owe her way more than a dinner, bro. Way <laughs> yeah. more than a dinner. You're going to be paying for that dearly. Wait till she's 16. She's still going to remind you about this. So so last question on Halloween is, I always steal my kids' candy when they go to school the day after yeah. Halloween. And I get through there, and I'm looking for a couple of things. The first thing I'm looking for is the Reese's, baby. I mean, for me, the Reese's is easily yes. number one on the uh, – power rankings of Halloween candy. What do you steal from your kid's bag? All right. So that's a great question. We went over this last night. Very underrated. And I'm going to shock the world is a Tootsie Roll. Underrated. That's not my go-to. I'm just telling you, I had one last night. I looked at my buddies. I said, this is very underrated. Just stay with me. And they're like, what are you Tootsie Roll. I go, hear me out. A piece of chocolate. Tootsie Roll kind of does the job. Reese's is number one. Sour Patch Kids, if I'm going to go in that direction, would be number two. Gummy Bears, Sour Patch Kids. Then you can go on to the Starburst and stuff like that. But Three Musketeers, Reese's, number one, two, and then those Sour Patch Kids probably be three. That is fantastic. I absolutely love that. You got to have the Starburst being soft, though. The key is that they have to be soft. Kevin, yes. I want to ask you, though, because, you know, last year I had major issues. I'm a big-time Giants fan, obviously. I'm a lifer, San Francisco native. And I love when the Dodgers lose. Last year, you know, Cody Bellinger, NLCS MVP, he doesn't even play in game one and two in the World Series because the spreadsheet tells him not to play him. I, I just – I don't understand where baseball is going right now. I, I love the game so much, but are we really <laughs> – is it really going to be dictated by Excel spreadsheets? Like, is there no gut? Is there no feel? I just watched a Hall of Fame manager in Bruce Bochy say sayonara to the fan base here uh, in San Francisco. Is he the last of the dinosaur when it comes to calling it from the gut type of managers? Is it all just spreadsheets now? Yeah, it, it's it's it, we're in a different dynamic right now. We have so much information in all sports, and it's sometimes you're losing your eyeballs. So when we talk about gut as manager, you also got to watch the game, right, with our eyes. And, and I understand, listen. The numbers are great. Take and choose. Give me what you need. But we can't forget that we're human beings. We're not robots. And you can't just say at 38-degree weather at nighttime against left-handers, you know, Dave hits 347 because he hits 350 against this left-handed curveball. But yep. you know what? That left-handed curveball that we're facing tonight 
might be different. It might be the Barry Zito version of a left-hand curveball or Clayton Kershaw of a left-hand curveball, which you can't hit anyway. So sometimes numbers, if you make, if that makes sense, kind of like, okay, his curveball he can hit, but what about his curveball? You know, Zach Granke's curveball, 68 to 71. What about that curveball instead of hitting Strasburg's, that might be 78 to 80. So there's a whole lot of stuff that goes into the numbers and stuff, but I'm with you. At the end of the day, if I'm the field manager, I'm watching this baseball game. I know who's swinging the bat well. It's not always about just numbers. If a guy's getting broken bat, blue pits, or if a guy's lining out and having a nice seven to eight pitch at bats, you watch a guy like Michael Brantley get in the batter's box. He's 0-2. Before you blink your eyes, he's seen nine pitches and it's 3-2. So that's a good at bat. Whether or not he gets out or not, that's still a positive at bat. We used to in the minor leagues have a thing called quality plate appearances. And it was awesome because when we were in A-ball, double-A, we're so caught up in the numbers and we're so caught up, oh, he's, he's three for 10, he's hitting 300. But if you were two for 10, hitting 200, but you have, you know, seven quality play appearances, which is a nice walk or a nice line out or something, you would get, you know, you would know that. So that tells you, and as a manager or whoever, this kid's having good at bats. He's okay. That's the stuff we're losing because we're so numbers oriented. And I'm telling you, I, you know, good or bad, it's definitely a little weird because you see guys sit on the bench and too, too many lambs mixed up and mixed match. It'd be a tough time for me to play in the day, day like this because I love playing every second. Speaking of managerial styles, and we're talking to Kevin Millar, the host of Intentional Talk from MLB Network. If you were managing, does Garrett Cole pitch in that game? Does he come in for Zach Granke? Yeah, David. I- you know what's funny? I'm watching the same game you guys did. There wasn't a whole lot of hard contact off Zach Granke. And I love me some AJ, but I'm going to tell you, I'm watching the game that he is painting down. He is painting on the corners. He hung a change up to Rendon, who Rendon, as we watched for seven days, is the real deal Holyfield with that bat in his hand and defensively. So he hits a change up out. We're still up 2-1. We've got, what, 80-plus pitches? It didn't make sense to me why Zach Granke left the game. And let's say he is going to leave the game. Well, the next guy that gets the ball is Garrett Cole, in my opinion, because now we're trying to eliminate outs, right? We're trying to figure out, okay, now we just need to get seven outs, six outs, whatever the number is. So you start working backwards. Okay, if we're going to go Garrett Cole, he's up in the bullpen. This isn't just fake. Give me give me Garrett Cole, the next guy. And then we can go do, do the Osuna, and then we can kind of break down. Listen, Will had a great a great postseason, but when you start seeing a relief, or, a relief pitcher in there for three or four times in a seven-game series, now it's not as different, you know, because it's not as different once you've seen him once, twice, three times now. So I just think the next guy that got the ball was going to be Garrett Cole. And I still don't know why we took out Zach Granke. And I know that that's an armchair quarterback, and I'm not even talking about the result. I was just watching the game. Zach Granke was absolutely dynamic that night. There's no question. Absolutely no question. I'm right there with you. I, I, I... I just don't understand it. Go to your best pitcher. Um, you know, Juan Soto was just so impressive throughout the entire postseason. I saw him roll in to AT&T Park this year, and he looked like a guy who's been playing for 10 years. I can think in my life, Miguel Cabrera, Andrew Jones, guys who made their presence on the World Series stage, him getting brushed back by Verlander and then going yard on the very next pitch. How special is this kid, Kevin? Yeah, he's got a presence in that batter's box. Besides all the antics and the skits and the dirt kicking and the crotch grabbing and all that stuff, I you know I get all that. Sometimes it gets a tick too much because we're trying to play the you know tickle bunny. I will tell you this: this kid knows the strike zone. This kid, when he came up as a 19-year-old, you saw that he established a strike zone. And when you have a young kid 
that can handle the breaking ball and the fastball and knows the strike zone. Like that's what made Barry Bonds so great. Uh, since you're a Northern Cal guy, it made him so great because the strike zone he knew was a shoebox. And when players know the strike zone and don't expand that strike zone and swing at strikes, you've got this game matched because everybody can hit. A lot of the times we get out because we, we, we expand the zone. We're swinging at curveballs in the dirt, sliders off the plate, fastballs high, 0-2, you know, whatever they, whatever the sequence is. This kid, man, he handles all pitches and doesn't expand, which makes him a very tough out. And then you add the power and everything else involved. Did it, you know, we, we saw stars going to be born. I love the swagger of that kid. Man, he looks at you like he is going to murder whatever you pitch you put over that plate. So I open up the Washington Post this morning. I'm an old school newspaper man. But the sports headline really grabbed me. The Nationals just pulled off the greatest postseason upset run in the history of baseball. And I doubt it's even close. You were part of a pretty special run, as I recall, uh, one that I covered back in 2004. Was the Nationals run the greatest postseason upset in the history of the game? No, no, I don't. I, in my opinion, I don't think it's an upset. I don't think. I mean, they, these guys walk around with a three-headed monster, you know. But like I said, Patrick Corbin once again has never gotten the credit he deserves. But he struck out 230 players, 238 players this year. You look at Strasburg and you look at Max Scherzer. I mean. It's hard to say that, that that was like an upset. This isn't a Joe Namath situation where he walked in as an underrated and underdog. Yeah. Did they not get the credit they deserve? Yeah, you can say that. Did they beat a great team in the Los Angeles Dodgers who were the mighty team in the Nationals? Yes, that was a great, great series, and that was an upset. And then they walk in and beat a Houston team that was the best team in baseball on paper and looking to make their own dynasty, kind of like the Giants did in 10 and 12 and 14, trying to win it in 17, 19, and 21, or whatever the dynasty they were talking. Yeah. I would say they were the underdogs. It's not the greatest upset in the world because I looked at the Nationals team. First of all, you talk about Juan Soto. They have the MVP at third base probably. You have three guys at the top of the rotation that could pitch. Their bullpen was a tick weak. It was 28th in the National League, uh, you know, in the big leagues coming in. But they pitched well the last couple weeks. They won eight straight games to end the season. They won 18 and 21 at some point. They were able to win on the road. So I don't know what, 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 what craziest upset we've ever seen. When you get to this stage and you get to play the big boys in the postseason, the World Series, you're going you're gonna to face high velocity, which they had, high strikeout type pitchers, which they had, and you saw a team that believed in themselves. And they took the first two games in Houston out of nowhere. That's never happened to Garrett Cole or Justin Verlander to lose back-to-back -back days, especially at home where the Astros are tough. And then they go on the road. I mean, go back to home, and then they get beat three games. And everybody's like, oh, my goodness gracious, the Astros just woke up. And then come right back to Houston and take six and seven. So remarkable series, I would say. Uh, awesome series behind the scenes. And they believed in each other, I would say. But I wouldn't say the best, the biggest upset in, uh, in the World Series. You know, Kevin, I, I just I'm, I'm blown away by the Astros because they got so many stars. I just don't know where they go from here. I understand they got a great nucleus. Gurriel's, what, 35, 36 years old. He had an outlier year, 35 home runs, 100 RBIs. I mean, he was spectacular this year. But they're going to lose Garrett Cole probably in free agency. I mean, do they just roll this thing back? Because it's, it's so hard to get back to the World Series. We've seen this with so many different teams. They remind me so much of the 88, 89, 90 Oakland A's where they only had one World Series for all those amazing teams, all that talent. I mean, are they just are they the favorite heading into next year? Are they going to are they going to be back again at this time next year? Yeah, they got they got a team that's really not going anywhere. I mean, Altuve signed. You got Bregman is signed. You got Correa's there. 
George Springer. You, you, you look at the club. Every year, Frazee hurts a team. The one thing about this team, they're pretty smart about, like, keeping the group together and signing who they need, the nucleus. You're going to have a minor league pitcher come up that's going to be some way that you're like, ah, this kid's good. I shot a proposal out there. It's just my day after the World Series proposal. I'm signing Rendon. He would stay in Texas, Rice University. Perfect. Put him at third, move Bregman to short, trade Correa, go get some young pitching. There you have it. You're losing Garrett Cole. He'll probably be the highest annual pitchers in the history of baseball. He wants to go back to the West Coast. UCLA boy probably ends up in Anaheim. Uh, Rendon will end up in Texas somewhere. And then uh, I was just saying, if you get a little froggy, go and sign him and shift Bregman to shortstop and see what happens uh, on the Correa, you know, Correa situation with some young pitching. What do you think about that one, boys? Wow, that was impressive general managing. Where does Garrett Cole end up? Garrett Cole goes to the Anaheim Angels, back to the West Coast. Then you got Strasburg that's going to opt out. He'll end up maybe back in San Diego where he went to college. So I'm just thinking about – I'm thinking out loud. We're going to have a slow offseason. We know that. Scott Boris has got all of them, so they probably won't sign until <laughs> April 29th. And so you know how this all goes. We're going to be sitting there at the winter means in San Diego from December 9th going – but every player represented by Boris, and you're like, okay, so uh, great having you guys. Let's go golfing. Boris won the World Series, no question about that. Uh, it's Kevin Millar, host of Intentional Talk. Um, I want to ask you about this group of Nationals players, though, in terms of the loose, goofy, fun, passionate atmosphere that they foster in the clubhouse, in the dugout, in the stands. Does it remind you of your group from 2004? <clears throat> Yeah, you know what's funny? When you win, you have clubhouse chemistry, right? With winning teams, you really see not having fun. So I enjoy that aspect about it because it is a part of baseball, the chemistry part. I don't know how many wins it is, but when you get a group of guys that really care about each other, you understand because behind the locker rooms, when all the articles and all the talk shows and all the stuff's going on, everybody's got an opinion, right? So you're sitting there watching all these shows like, oh, okay. You're picking the Astros of six. Okay. They're not coming back to D.C. Okay. Or, you know, they're not coming back to Houston. So you start getting all this stuff. But behind the scenes, you got boys club going, all right, let's go. Let's go, boys. A little steak dinner, a little red wine. Let's talk about it. The Astros had a little meeting once they went into, you know, D.C. Kind of going, okay, we're all in two. This isn't going to work. So they do their thing. And the Nationals are sitting over there going, no one believes in us. And you know what's funny? Let me just say one more thing I want you guys to think about, Joe and Dave. Mm -hmm. Check this out. Scherzer wakes up with a sore neck. We've all done it. You can't move. It stinks. You're like, wow, what bad timing. We all felt bad for Max Scherzer. We can't see Garrett Cole and Scherzer in Nationals Park. Guess what? Joe Ross is going to start for Max Scherzer. The sky is falling. Wasn't an elimination game. No. So we're going to go ahead and assume that we're going to lose to Garrett Cole because no one's beat him this entire year other than game one. Awesome. Let's let Joe Ross start. We'll take the loss. We'll be down 3-2. Hopefully, Strasburg gets a chance to pitch well in game six. If we get to a game seven, we're set up perfectly with Max Scherzer because then what? We got Max Scherzer. So I thought it was genius. And Strasburg, obviously, through the game of his life in game six, which they all believed he could because he's turned into their Garrett Cole and went 5-0 and in this postseason and winning the MVP. And then it kind of worked out nicely for the Nats. Game seven, Max Scherzer, who was their ace to start the year. So it, it was a pretty uh, interesting how hurt was he. I know he was sore, but maybe that was kind of like, we're not going to beat Garrett Cole anyways. Let's save you for game seven if we get there. 
Old school gamesmanship. I kind of like it. All right, I, look, we got the uh, the off season coming. We know the Yankees every year they're going to try to retool. So I got to ask you a couple questions about my San Francisco Giants. Where does Madison Bumgarner land in free agency? And what the heck is going on with this managerial search? Is Gabe Kapler the guy? Huh. There's a lot of jobs that opened up right the year. You had eight of them. Now they're kind of getting filled slowly, but surely. You know, one thing about Cap is that, you know, he's a West Coast guy. Let's get that straight. Grew up up there in, uh, in the West, what you know, with the Encino, the, the Valley of, of California, which is about 30 miles from Los Angeles. So I know he's a West Coast guy. The, the higher in Philly, you're kind of like, man, okay, go get him, Cap, on the East Coast. But I think he's definitely a guy that's a candidate. I don't know the whole ins and outs on the, who's going to be hired. I've heard Mark Kotze's name thrown out there, another West Coast guy, Golden Spikes winner out of Cal State Fulton, who is your, like, helper for the Oakland A's this year. The assistant to the assistant. There's so many job tiles I can't keep up. It used to be just like bench coach, pitching coach, manager. Now we have like a strength coordinating conditioner, assistant to the mental side, to the assistant to the UVR spin rate side, to the assistant to the document papers handing you side. So Kapler, Kotze, I've heard some names. Yeah, they're all West Coast guys. I think that's the fit you got to go. It's just like when you sign guys that go play in the East Coast. You got to have some makeup. You can't just sign the best player if the guy's softer than Hummus. So when you go to Boston, you better have a little makeup to go play or go to Philadelphia, you better have a little makeup to play. And, uh, yeah, Kapler's a guy that definitely I can see managing for the Giants. I want to ask you quickly uh, before we let you go about the ratings for the World Series, because if it weren't for game six and seven, if this thing would have been wrapped in five, even six, we would be talking about historically bad numbers still the third lowest rated World Series ever, the only one to compare to in recent years, Giants and Royals in 2014. 23 million people watched Game 7, but overall the numbers were terrible. What does that tell you? We, we didn't have a moment, Dave. We were waiting for a moment until Game 7, and until really Game 6. We talked about There wasn't a moment. We were talking about, you know, the moment of, was it Game 3 when Animal Sanchez hit with a guy in, third base less than two outs and I think the game was 2-1 at that time it was like how do you hit Anibal Sanchez how much more are you going to get him he already went four innings and gave up two runs like how much more is he going to go this is a good time to pinch hit for him so like we were talking about that story and then the umpire story the base running like it didn't matter because Rendon drove in five and hit a home run that you know game six we were talking about where's the baseline how, how is Turner called out like that was a moment everybody's trying to create it didn't even matter in the game we just all learned the rule now because we really don't know the rule when a hitter gets done swinging the bat and Turner takes off in a straight line. I thought that was, you know, he was fine. He wasn't zigzagging, but you got to get in that 45 foot thing. So to answer your question, we wait for a moment. Like where's the, when's the moment going to happen? Strasburg goes out there in game six, Rendon goes out there and drives in five. And you're like, wow, this might be the moment we push it to a game seven, which game sevens are, are exciting. Now we got 23 million people watching game seven, but up to that point, you couldn't name a moment. You couldn't even like who's going to be MVP, you know? So I think that's part of it. Uh, moments are fun. Altuve game six, walk off against the Yankees. Like those are moments you're like, wow. Okay. Yeah. So game seven happens and then thank God game seven happened. And uh, I thank God the Nationals won game six from that umpire, you know, opinion, you know, Holbrook baseline thing. Cause if that would have cost the Nationals. Can you imagine having that storyline? Like, how do you make that call? Game six, even though it's the rule, and Sam did a good job of following the rule. So I think that a lot of that, babe, was part of the moment. And, you know, big market teams, people wanted to see Dodgers-Yankees. You know, that's that's going to yeah. rate higher. So 
the guys behind the scenes are one of the big market guys. The country missed a beautiful World Series. Last question, though, had to do with some moments that were interesting off the field. Some fans had some moments. There was Jeff Adams, the double-fisted Bud Light guy who took a, a home run ball off the chest. There was another chest story, Julia Rose, who flashed her boobs to Garrett Cole in Game 5, along with her friend from Shag Mag. By the way, Kev, we had her on the program yesterday. We all fell in love. Or there's yep. the... The, the other chest moment, the big uh, chubby Nats fan. I hope everyone saw this guy, Jason Turner. He's a student. Okay, he's a fat guy. He took his shirt off celebrating at Nats Park and did a slip and slide on the Nats dugout. Which one of those three fans won the World Series? Well, let's be honest. I think it was number two. I mean, there's nothing <laughs> like that, right? Well, you know what? I love my Budweiser boy. I'm going to tell you, he, he got famous quick because you got double-fisted, boom, ball hit you, and he got the ball which was impressive. The impressive thing, because that ball hits you, okay, he kind of had the happy Gilmore, but to go down and get the ball, because, you know, once that ball goes down, you got 15 fingers and hands going down there going, and he came up with it and barely spilled his beer until he kind of went for the ball. Yeah. So I love that, but let's not, let's not, let's be honest. I mean, there was nothing like seeing the, uh, yeah, yeah, you said. Yeah, and, and, and by the way, she says they're real. <laughs> She was on yesterday, and she said they are real. And to quote Seinfeld, they are real, and they are spectacular. And she's a lovely young woman. She's a lovely uh, young woman. Great personality. i got to tell you. Uh, you were a carton of milk. I was Jeff Adams. I dressed as the Bud Light two-fisted fan. Uh, that was my Halloween costume. Yesterday. Yes! <laughs> yeah, Baby was, fresh. Was, I love it. It's pretty solid. Here I am yesterday, for those of you who can see on the uh, app you're watching, Ross Tucker was uh, the demigod Maui from Moana, and I was ah. two-fisted Jeff Adams. Uh, Kev, good Love to it. see you, my friend. Thanks for spending so much time with us on a Friday. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Kev. All right, boys. Thanks a lot. All right, great fun with Kevin Millar. Check him out on MLB Network. He's the host of Intentional Talk. When we come back, we will explain why Joe is called Butcher Boy. We'll also have a great debate between Baltimore and New England on who wins this Patriots-Ravens game. I cannot wait. Also, Joe's take on the future of the Golden State Warriors, both short-term and long-term. We're back after a quick break. An NFL Hall of Famer, a Heisman Trophy winner, Earl Campbell said something stunningly racist about white versus black quarterbacks, but barely getting any attention nationwide. Speaking of nationally, everybody in the media thinks the Baltimore Ravens will finally get a loss in the column for the Patriots and upset Bill Belichick's defense. We'll debate this between Baltimore and New England's radio stations in just a bit. Should get feisty there. Home and home radio.com sports original. We are brought to you by Zip Recruiter. Check them out. ZipRecruiter.com slash enter ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. November 1st, for me, always a great day. Kids go to school. You steal their bags of candy. You rifle through them to find the good stuff. Yeah, they'll catch you later, but who cares? You'll already have consumed it. Highly recommend the Butterfinger. I'm Dave Briggs, home in Connecticut. We're joined by Joe Shasky. We are coast to coast today. And Joe, What's your go-to candy bar? Do you have like a top three power ranking if you had to choose? I know you don't have kids. You don't have a candy bag to rob from the day after Halloween. If you could, what would you steal? 
Well, we ask this question at least once a week. We have a segment called Ask Your Butcher, and we have different food topics. And so one of the ones this week was obviously most overrated candy. And I think we all agree most overrated candy is got to be candy corn. I, I don't know anybody that likes candy corn. For me, no. I mean, give me some M&Ms. I mean, they're the New York Yankees of candy. I mean, who doesn't like M&Ms? They go great in trail mix. They go great standalone. You could sprinkle them over ice cream. They're phenomenal. And then Reese's Pieces, you got to have some Reese's in there. And if I was going to go number three, it's see, this is the key. It's got to be a soft starburst. Soft starburst. I'm going to go red, pink, then yellow, and then we can go with the rest. But uh, yeah, that's that, that's my candy power rankings right there. You even ranked the flavors of Starburst. That is quality effort. I'm really surprised at the M&M's thing, man. I mean, I'm really surprised at that. That just seems so ubiquitous. I mean, it's so, it, to your point, <laughs> like they're in trail mix. I mean, how special can it be if it's in trail mix? How do you feel about a Butterfinger? I think Butterfinger is highly underrated maybe the number one most underrated candy bar there is there's the only issue i have with butterfinger is that oh. it requires two things number one your teeth to be brushed immediately after and you got to have milk with it because it's very difficult to just put down a butterfinger without a little yeah. milk and my wife you know she's cutting me off the two percent milk i gotta switch to the uh to the almond milk, I'm on that almond milk, uh, you know, situation right now. I I'm not loving it. I'm not going to lie. I'm not loving it. But, you know, what my wife wants, she gets. So that's what's in our refrigerator okay. right now. Number one, it's got to be unsweetened vanilla oh. if you go with the almond milk. Is that how you rock it? I've got the, no, I've got – I'm trying to get it into the camera here. I've got the unsweetened organic almond milk, but it's plain. It's plain. It's not mm. the vanilla – yeah, she doesn't want me to have any more of the sugars. You know, I work late nights. You know, we, we have a night show. So I'm consuming lots and lots of caffeine and sugar already. You know, I don't drink any alcohol. So those are my vices. And uh, yeah, yeah. So wait you know, a minute. For me, what's that? I think you just said you don't drink any alcohol. And and, and I apologize to you because <laughs> I, I, call, I call Fridays, Joe, Bloody Mary Friday. And I tend to sit here and sip on a bloody mary as we talk sports here on home and home just five minutes of commercials every hour what's the deal why no alcohol and how do you did you ever drink bloody marys no no you know i'm an irish catholic and growing up in san francisco as a high schooler i got my party on and uh it was one of those <laughs> things i had to cut out some some vices in life as i got into my 20s and it's honestly made me a happier, more productive individual. I, my wife does all the drinking for the family. She's so much better at parties and happier. And you know me, I'm a curmudgeon. You know, I, I, I talk and entertain for a living these days. So, you know, I like to just sit on the couch and scream at the television. You know, I usually stand and hover over the television looking at sports. I'd rather hang out with the kids, to be honest. I do a lot of coaching. So I'd rather hang out with the kids than the adults nine times out of ten. Joe Shasky with us today from 95.7 The Game. Follow him, ButcherBoy415 on Twitter. Bloody Marys are my thing. It is time. You need to explain to the audience why you are called ButcherBoy. Well, you know, back in the day, I, I didn't go to school for journalism. I don't have a college degree or any of those things. I, I worked in a butcher shop, and back in the day, there used to be a bandsaw, and the name of the bandsaw was the Butcher Boy bandsaw. So I would stand near the phone, and I would call into radio stations on the late night or when we were working, and I would talk sports. And me and a bunch of the guys in the butcher shop, all the OGs, you know, they dubbed me Butcher Boy. That was kind of my nickname. So that became my mm. caller alias 
And when I would call into the local radio stations, they would take my calls. And as my calls got better and better, people would give me more run. And thankfully, my man Damon Bruce got me into a 95-7 the game. And a one-hour hit turned into, you know, why don't you work some weekends? Next thing you know, we got a night show. And so I'm very grateful and appreciative. And, uh, and, and we kind of give the fans a forum because I, I hate when – when other people come to our market and talk about our teams, you know, I'm a diehard Niner Giants warrior fan. I've seen it all, been through it all. And there's nothing worse than the guy who just comes, you know, flying into town. He's got a show and he wants to tell you about your team. So we try to connect with the fans and, and talk from a, a, a fan perspective. I got 49er season tickets. I sit in the end zone. I'm one of you. I don't use a press pass. I don't sit with the media. You know, I like the perspective of a true sports fan because at the end of the day, you know, 99.9% of the people that I'm communicating with or that I'm talking to are diehard sports fans. So I try to relate to them on that level, if that makes sense. I absolutely love it. You love the cheat seats. I love the cheap seats. As a butcher, though, favorite cut of steak? I mean, are you a filet guy, porterhouse, New York? What's your go-to? Well, you know, that's a complicated question. I mean, that's like, who's your favorite child? You know what I mean? That's, you don't have an answer, that's but easy. I will go Chateaubriand. What? <laughs> no, that's I will easy, go Chateaubriand. <laughs> I, I like Chateaubriand. It's a top sirloin cut. It's a little thicker. Uh, you throw that bad boy on the grill. You can sear it, throw it in the oven. It's got great huh. marbleization. The price point is good. Uh, if you really want to go insider, insider, you know, A-gap type stuff, if we were talking about Ross Tucker, I would go with the hanger steak. The hanger steak is the butcher really? steak. It oxidizes quicker than any of the other steaks, so you're not going to see it at the meat counter. It's one of those ones that back in the day when the butcher would cut the entire animal, now everything's sectioned out and thrown in boxes, but that's what the butcher would bring home for his family. It's got great flavor. Some fantastic cut. I like to marinate it, you know. You got to get your tri-tip on. That's a California thing. I like tri-tip, too. Chateaubriand. Wow, that was not the answer I was expecting. I'm kind of a porterhouse guy. I like, you know, if I happen to be with the dude and I can get the porterhouse for two and you, you slice it up. Oh, man, now I'm hungry as hell. All right, so the things you cover, obviously, you are in in the thick of it. Not many more not many sports markets more interesting than yours right now. In particular, of course, the Niners, which we'll get to again in a moment. But the Golden State Warriors, who looked like they were in the midst of one of the great dynasties in NBA history, and suddenly the hits keep on coming. Klay Thompson out for the season, ACL. KD leaves in free agency, and we'll talk about him in a minute. And then Steph Curry breaks his left hand. He's on the shelf. I'm usually a pessimist, a, a glass half uh, empty kind of guy. But with the Warriors, I guess my reaction was this could be a positive for Golden State. The young guys have to step up. They have to learn how to score. They have to learn how to lead. And the Golden State Warriors with two top 12 players in the NBA could end up with the top 10 pick. This is terrible in the short run. Do you think it can be good for them in the long run? Wow, that's such a loaded question. I from the fans' perspective, it's just devastating. I mean, you you had the greatest five-year run that maybe any NBA team has ever had, five straight finals appearances. And you got to understand what the Warriors were for my entire life. I mean, they were, they were the have-nots my entire life. I mean, they couldn't get anything right. We talk about tanking, and you were referencing the Miami Dolphins a couple hours ago. I mean, the, the Warriors had top lottery picks year after year after year, but because they didn't have the culture, because they didn't have – 
you know, the infrastructure around all these high draft picks, they, they could never develop anyone. And then eventually, finally, they got the ownership change. They brought in the right coaches. They, they, the culture was there, but it started with Steph Curry getting drafted. And, you know, we, we talk about tanking. He wasn't a number one overall pick. You know, Johnny Flynn and Ricky Rubio went back to back, Minnesota. You know, how's that working out for them? And I think Jordan Hill was taken right before him, the New York Knicks. Thank you. Uh, Steph Curry was the seventh pick overall in the draft. But what they did was they built the organization around him and they drafted Klay Thompson, 11th overall. Like they did a fantastic job identifying developing and then cultivating that development like this all these things don't happen by accident you don't just tank and all of a sudden boom we're good again and they did some amazing jobs signing contracts that were beneficial for the organization and by the time kevin durant hit free agency they got lucky they got lucky because harrison barnes did not take a contract extension and that enabled them to squeeze kevin durant under the salary cap before all of the salary cap expansion. So had they signed Steph Curry a year, two years later, they wouldn't have been able to afford Kevin Durant. And, you know, they, they, they were so, so lucky. But where they're at right now, this is just devastating. They opened a brand new building off the backs of the five-year run. They got all of the season ticket holders to put down money for season ticket licenses to fund Chase Center. They moved from Oakland, East Oakland, down, down into downtown San Francisco, Mission Bay, a relatively new neighborhood in San Francisco. And there's a lot of backlash because, like I said, the Bay Area has two sides. You got all the people in San Francisco, Marin, Peninsula, and then you got the East Bay fan, Oakland, Walnut Creek, Livermore, that entire. And usually we don't root for the same teams. There's Giants on one side, A's on the other. Raiders on one side, Niners on the other. Well, this is the one team that unites the entire Bay Area. And yet when they moved into San Francisco, there was a backlash. And so now with this injury, it's just it's just devastating on multiple fronts. Economically, you're already seeing seats for Friday night, tonight's game for $45, a brand new downtown San Francisco arena with seats for 45 bucks on StubHub. Like I just, I couldn't comprehend that just six months ago. And in the last Golden State Warrior games that matter, not preseason, but games that matter, last six games, they've lost Kevin Durant, they've lost Klay Thompson, they've lost Kevon Looney, and they've lost Steph Curry. I, I, I just can't think of a situation where a basketball team lost that many superstars. Now Kevon Looney's not a superstar, but he's very important to what they're doing. This is devastating. Could it be a blessing in disguise because they could develop young players, get a high draft pick? Yes. But the other side of this is, dude, I, if I'm putting down money as a season ticket holder, I, I kind of want some return on my investment. You, you asked me for 20 grand up front. Where, where's that? Can you meet me in the middle and compete for a couple of years, uh, a couple of months? Like in February, I get it. If you're, you know, 40 games out, yeah, shut it down, you know, lock it in, try to get a lottery pick. There's 78 games left, Dave. 78 games. What are you, you're just going to tank for the entire season? Like, the competitor in me and the, the uh, knowing what an athlete goes through, knowing what a fan base goes through, that's just unacceptable. It's not. It's November 1st. You can't tank the whole season. Boy, clearly the local perspective does not share my glass half full optimistic <laughs> perspective for the Golden State Warriors. Great to hear the honesty and the fan perspective, though, from the Golden State Warriors. Joe Shasky with us from 95-7 The Game. I can't think of a baseball, football, basketball, hockey team that's had consecutive 
bang, 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 devastating blows to an organization. Maybe our researchers, millennials, Joe, we call them the millennials. Get on it. Tell us the biggest postseason, offseason, next season, devastating blows. Is this the worst ever? You mentioned the departure of Kevin Durant, and now we're learning more about the departure of Kevin Durant because he was on ESPN yesterday talking with Stephen A. Smith and company about why he left the organization. He is now with the Brooklyn Nets rehabbing that injury. Will he be back this year? Probably not. Probably next year as Kyrie will have to carry the load and light it up for Brooklyn. But what Kevin Durant said, boy, I can't help but wonder how it's going to go over in the Bay Area. He talked about an incident with Stephen A. Smith last year against the Clippers. And it was an ugly back and forth between Durant and Draymond Green. When Draymond blew up on KD, reportedly calling him a bitch multiple times before dropping the real bombshell on KD, that they don't need Durant, that they had won without him, and that Durant should go ahead and leave as a free agent. That was the exchange between Draymond Green and Kevin Durant, and Durant acknowledged that is part of the reason he left the Golden State Warriors, wanted to go on on his own, join up with Kyrie Irving and the Brooklyn Nets, and they'll be a fascinating team next season when they're all healthy. Joe, how will that go over with the Warriors fan base in terms of their relationship with Draymond Green, who is a very complicated player in and of himself? Dave, Draymond Green is beloved by Golden State Warrior fans, but I also think, I think time might change how we look at Draymond Green. This season in particular, with no Steph Curry, no Klay Thompson, I think it's going to expose Draymond on many levels. Look, last year when the whole incident went down, I, I do all the work. We do the show after the Warriors post games. I said it right then and there. I said, you got to trade Draymond Green. Like, Draymond Green is very important to the, what the Warriors want to do. Kevin Durant is a top 15 all-time talent in the history of the NBA. And just from a personal level, just from a, like a work situation, if you were addressed in the manner with which Draymond Green addressed Kevin Durant, what co-worker would, would not have issue with that? I, it doesn't make any sense. You cannot talk to someone like that. And then, like, this is the equivalent of Horace Grant or even someone lesser than that, Tony Kukoc or whatever, like undressing Michael Jordan because that's what Kevin Durant is. He's that talented. And I know people might roll their eyes. He's a unicorn. The guy's a seven-foot unicorn who can yak in anyone's face, pull up a jumper. He's unbelievable. Like the guy's an all-time talent. And this guy undressed him in front of millions of people, and, and he said things that you just can't take back. When you get in an argument with a friend, a family member, your wife, whatever it is, and you say something that you just can't forget, and, and it just it changes the relationship forever. In my opinion, the Warriors tried to suspend Draymond. They tried to, like, say, hey, look, here you go. We slapped him on the wrist, uh, Kevin Durant. We, we want to side with you, but they should have traded him right away because there's a couple elements. It's a, it's a salary cap league. You only have so many moves. Right now, the Warriors are hard capped, and they're stuck with Draymond Green. He makes $20 million this year, okay? And that was great when he was a glue guy, when, when you had Durant, when you had Klay Thompson, when you had Steph Curry. When he's by himself, that is an anchor contract. He makes 20 to 30 million over the next four years. They gave him an extension. He's already got an injured back. 
Like, we, we know that he bangs with guys six inches bigger than him, 40 pounds heavier than him. He's going to break down. He's never been the same since the shoulder injury. Like, I, I love Draymond. I love what he represents. The guy competes. He's a lunatic. He has to walk that tight line, you know, to, to get himself fired up. I understand the entire country probably hates his guts, and I get it. But I go with the Bill Walsh theory. It's better to get rid of someone a year or two early than to hang on through the glory years. Look what happened with the Lakers when they were stuck with Kobe Bryant and they were trying to force that down everybody's throat. It set them back four or five years. The same thing with the Warriors. They should have moved off of Draymond last year. Now, Kevin Durant might have left them anyway, but they would at least have some financial flexibility to build this roster out around them. Like, again, I love Draymond Green. But you don't pay someone 20 to $30 million over the next five years to be a glue guy because that's really what he is. That's some outstanding local perspective from Joe Shasky on Draymond Green and the role he may have played in the departure of Kevin Durant. And before we move on, I want to talk about Joel Embiid and Carl Anthony Towns in just a sec. But how did the fan base out there embrace Kevin Durant? Well, <laughs> Different pockets felt different things. I was one of the people saying every single night, I'm just so happy because, again, my Warriors were a lottery team every single year of my life. They literally were the worst-run franchise across sports. Like, it was them and the Tampa Bay Bucks and the Cleveland Browns. Like, you can't get any worse than that. When he came here, it was surreal. I was so happy. I was so proud. And I was appreciative because he put us over the top. We don't win these last two titles uh, without Kevin Durant coming to the Warriors. And so I understood per the perspective. There was another set of fans that, you know, they love Steph and Steph can do no wrong. For some reason, they felt like it was either Steph or Kevin Durant that you had to give love to. I always thought, you know, my God, well, why do we have to split this thing up? Can't we appreciate all of them? Equally, can we appreciate them all simultaneously? Why does one person have to get more love than the other? Like, it's a pie of, of love that I'm giving out. I can dice it up a million different ways. I, I don't understand why you have to pick and choose. Like, it, it, basketball is a game where you played with teammates. It, it, Michael Jordan didn't win by himself. Kawhi Leonard didn't win the championship last year by himself. LeBron James, when he beat them on Father's Day in 2016, he didn't win by himself. He had a really good team. Kyrie Irving hit unbelievable shots. Richard Jefferson killed them, for crying out loud. So I just never understood the backlash against Kevin Durant, and I felt like it was more fueled by social media. And that the, the people that I associate with, like when I go to, like, I coach a lot of basketball. When I go out, everybody that I talk to in the real world, they love Kevin Durant. They're like, I cannot believe he came to the Warriors. Can you believe this? This is unbelievable. And then on social media, you have this small yeah. vocal minority that's like, he's a snake. Oh, he only came here to bandwagon ride. And I just, there's a huge disconnect between social media and the real world. And I just, I don't get why Kevin Durant is so insecure to where he literally can only listen to what's on social media. Dude, hit the mute button. You are a billionaire. Put the phone down for a few minutes. But I guess he's a millennial, and that's how they roll these days. Stay off of social media. Could not agree with you more. Speaking of social media, an on-the-court brawl got even more interesting on social media between Carl Anthony Towns and Joel Embiid. They're both suspended. We'll talk about that in just a sec. But first, hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura CEO Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company. Instead of just hiring me, I'm a coffee expert he was uh he went to ZipRecruiter. 
ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on quality candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job so you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. Nailed it in just a few days. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our exclusive web address. It is ZipRecruiter.com slash enter. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash enter. Or for you spelling majors, E-N-T-E-R. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. And the smartest way to get your ass suspended in the NBA is do what Carl Anthony Towns and Joel Embiid did the other night. Boy, did they get a brawl on between the Wolves and the Sixers. And these two have a lot of history. They clearly don't like each other much. And there were some blows exchanged. There was a thumb in the eye. There was a headlock from Ben Simmons. Um, Simmons did not get suspended, by the way. But Embiid and Carl Anthony Towns each got suspended two games for their fight. I'm surprised it wasn't more. It really got interesting, though, on social media when it was clear this is no show. These two genuinely do not like each other, do not respect each other, can't wait until their game in March, not until March, unfortunately. Here's what Joel Embiid tweeted, and this is a long exchange, back and forth, back and forth, and Embiid stuck the landing with this one. That tough guy act ain't cutting it. You know what you are? You know what you've always been? A pussy. Say it louder for people in the back been kicking your ass and pretty please make the playoffs before you talk. It's a known thing that I own you. Adding Carl Anthony Towns. Brutal, savage, on the court, off the court. And quite frankly, the trend in the NBA the last several years, at least in the LeBron James, Steph Curry era, is of friendships, jersey exchanges, hugs, sharing agents, and of course the infamous banana boat ride between a bunch of NBA superstars. To me, I was thrilled to see two guys genuinely hate each other, genuinely fighting on and off the court. It reminded me of the days when I grew up watching the NBA with the physical nasty Knicks, with Bill Beer and the bad boy Celtics, when guys genuinely didn't like each other, when they weren't afraid to throw some punches, when they weren't afraid to dislike each other off the court, who gives a crap if they share the same agent? I like to see the physicality and the hatred a little bit back in the game. The Sixers and the Celtics, I think, is one of the great new rivalries. Well, old rivalries renewed, rather. These two genuinely hate each other. They had more than 60 personal fouls earlier this year. Do you like to see this physicality, the fighting, and the bitterness uh, in the NBA, or do you prefer banana boat rides? I mean, who doesn't love this? I love that we've got villains. Sports needs villains. One of my favorite players of all time is Barry Bonds. You know, he's a hero to us. He's a villain to everybody else in the entire country, but he's our villain. So there's something to be said for that. I, I love rivalries. Here, here's where I, I, I just kind of roll my eyes because these guys that are Twitter gangsters, it's like, come on, man. Like, you, you, you referenced the old Pistons. Rick Mahorn really was that tough. Charles Oakley really is that tough. 
You don't want to mess with those guys. Carl Anthony Towns and Joel Embiid, they just be talking. They just talking and talking and chirping and tweeting and, you know, with the Twitter fingers and whatnot. And that part is just funny to me. I roll my eyes because these guys are all rocking skinny jeans. And they're the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. Like, they've been coddled for so many years of their life. They're not tough. They're not street. Like, you guys are literally living better than everybody who's watching the game. That being said, I love, I love that there's at least an element of competitiveness here because that's what we miss. I love guys like Patrick Beverly. I, I know a lot of people get annoyed by like players like him, but his story, his journey, his grit, the way he plays with his pants on fire, screaming and yelling, he is a great villain and he's a great competitor. And I, am, I love what he embodies. Joel Embiid, look, the guy is completely hilarious on social media. That being said, he talks way too much. Like for a guy who hasn't won anything, I do find it pretty funny how much he chirps. And yet in all the big games, he evaporates. He's a seven foot giant who wants to bomb three pointers in closeout games. Like, what are we doing here? And then Carl Anthony Towns, you got completely owned by Jimmy Butler. You're, you've done nothing with the Minnesota Timberwolves. You're a complete disappointment. You're one of the all-time unicorn-type players who can put the ball on the floor. You're seven foot tall. You can stroke threes. You can go by people. And you can't get the Minnesota to 38 wins? Like, I, I, both of these guys drive me nuts, but it is compelling theater. Sign me up for it. I'm all about it. But it's just all the other stuff. Like, you guys aren't really that tough. Like, stop it. If you guys want to go at each other on the court, I'm all for it. But it's just not like you're really going to go knock on his door and knock him out. Charles Oakley will knock on your door and knock you out if he truly wanted to. Yes, Oak would definitely knock your knock on your door and knock you out. Uh, I am here for it too. I've got some popcorn ready for that March game between. <laughs> I mean, an, an ordinarily a rivalry. Who cares about the Sixers and the Wolves? But suddenly, I'm interested in it. So two game suspensions for the two superstars. As I mentioned, no suspension for Ben Simmons. We've got a photo of his quote, and this is his quote: <laughs> "Peacekeeping role." He said he was playing peacekeeper there. No suspension for him. That's Simmons. For those of you watching on the radio.com app and not just listening, Simmons has Carl Anthony Towns in the headlock. Is he a peacekeeper there, Joe? Oh, my God. I don't know what he is. He's pulling a Van Gundy, except instead of holding on to the ankle, he's holding on to the neck. I love these still photos of fights. I mean, this is the stuff I live for. All the little stuff after the fact. A few years ago, the, the San Francisco Giants got into a fight, and Michael Morse came sprinting out of the dugout. And if you remember correctly, Jeff Samar just speared him. And Michael Morse's career was over. He got hurt because his own teammate accidentally speared him in a fight. I'm all for these kind of fights. These are hilarious. I love these kerfluffles, whatever you want to call them. No, he's not playing peacekeeper. He's in there trying to get his little jabs. Again, these guys want to have their cake and eat it too. Just either you hate the Timberwolves or you don't. Stop this back and forth because you don't want to get crushed. Like, have a stance. Stick with it. It's not the end of the world. Guys get in fights. It's called creative tension. It happens every single day. You're in a machismo sport like basketball. I'm surprised there's not more fights. Right, bring it on. Give us more fights in the NBA. Not likely to happen. Those are good fights we agree on. I don't like the fight that Earl Campbell started off the field. Earl Campbell, the NFL great, the Hall of Famer. 
the Heisman Trophy winner, the University of Texas Heisman Trophy winner, spoke to the Austin Statesman earlier this week and said something flat-out racist that you probably have not heard because it's not getting any attention nationwide. Here is what Earl Campbell said. Until the University of Texas realizes you have to have a black quarterback and nothing against Ellinger, Sam Ellinger, you got to have a talented black quarterback. All these schools that are winning, even in the pros, have black quarterbacks. When guys are not open, something can still happen. Let's just call this what it is. It is flat out racist. It is stunning that this story is not an enormous national story. What if Joe, Matt Leinert, Carson Palmer said USC always should have a white quarterback because they need someone who can be calm under pressure and un understand complex offenses? Was this flat-out racist, and why is it not getting more nationwide attention? Is it just more evidence of a double standard? I mean, that's a loaded gun. Who knows? I don't even know what frame of mind this guy was in. I don't really have a huge, yep. you know, history of Texas program in general. Like, th probably the greatest quarterback of all time I could think of from Texas was Vince Young, who happened to be a black quarterback. Here's the, th well, the issue that I have. And, and this is this is sports is supposed to be about true democracy. Like if you can ball out, it doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what you do in your off time. It doesn't matter who you date, who you love. Like if you can ball, you can play. So I've always had an issue with anybody saying that I need a quarterback who's white or I need a running back who's black or whatever you're trying to give me. Like, no, I want the best athlete. I want the best player regardless of race, regardless of religion, gender, I don't care what it is. Like that's the beauty of sports. And that's why I love sports. It's about the best competitors at the highest level. Whoever can play, that's who gets the chance. And and that's I don't understand where he's going with this one. And again, that's why I, I don't I'm not trying to be reckless with the speculation. What was his yeah. frame of mind? Where did he come from with this? Is this just a quote? Was this a video interview? Like, I need more information on this. But clearly, he's completely out of his mind. I wonder about his sanity at an old age. Uh, is this something that he was even aware of what he was saying? Now, Texas, context, Texas has dropped a third straight game. They're out of the top 25. But he says even in the pros, I mean, apparently not aware of the GOAT, Tom Brady, the other GOAT, Drew Brees, <laughs> another GOAT-like quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, pretty decent white quarterbacks in the NFL. I did look up an interesting stat, though. Uh, the second winningest quarterback in the history of college football. Maybe he forgot about Colt McCoy. Second winning his QB in NCAA history with 45 wins at the University of Texas. But here's an interesting stat. And I, and I'm not I'm not saying that Earl Campbell is correct at all. Top 5 winningest quarterbacks in co in collegiate history. Here they are, Joe. Kellen Moore, white, oh, yeah. 50 and 50 and 3. Colt McCoy second, Andy Dalton is third. White, David Green is white, 42 and 10. Peyton Manning is also white, 39 and 6. So your top five winningest quarterbacks in NCAA history are white. But here's the thing. They combined for how many Heisman trophies and how many national championships? Goose egg. Wow. It is, a, it is amazing. Four? Zero. Not Zero? a single 
not a single national championship, and not a single Heisman Trophy among those top five winningest NCAA quarterbacks, wow. all white. Just, just an interesting um, statistic to put out there. I'm, I'm not sure what it means, and maybe I stirred up the horn and hornet's nest more than I should have. Yo. But this is this is my issue with sports. And, like, we've seen this with, like, here's a great example. The 49ers have Nick Bosa right now. And everybody, like, I, I do these radio shows, and I'm listening, and I'm saying, well, who's the comp? What's the NFL comp? And people can only list other white guys. And I'm saying, guys, look at his build. Look at the way he plays stylistically. I said, he is Michael Strahan 2.0, 6'4 and a half. 255 pounds, chiseled, you know, tiny little waist. And everyone's like, whoa, Michael Strahan. He looks more like Joey Bosa. I'm like, really, we're going to do the white guy on white guy thing? Like, we can't compare across races like that? That's absolutely absurd. The same thing happened with Christian McCaffrey when Christian McCaffrey was coming out. You know, he's a Stanford guy right down here on the farm. I said, Christian McCaffrey is Marshall Falk 2.0. I saw Marshall Falk when he played for the St. Louis Rams. He'd roll into candlestick, and he would destroy the 49ers. He was a chess piece. He could run on the outside. He could run on the inside. And yet everybody was saying, like, I don't know, man. Maybe he's maybe he's like Toby Gerhardt or Craig Hodges. I'm like, really? We can't do cross-racial comparisons on players and whatnot? Like, just take away the skin. Like, I don't understand why that even has to be in the in the discussion. If you can ball, you can ball. I I, I this this part drives me completely nuts. And look, there, there's a, a here's a great example. Jacoby Brissett. I mean, is he a fast quarterback? Absolutely not. But he's damn good. And you know what? He will crush you from the pocket. Like, I, I don't understand why we have to make these stereotypes and these generalizations. And it's only when it comes to race. It, it drives me nuts. It's something Cam Newton has faced throughout his entire career, needless to say. Some pretty significant news coming out just moments ago regarding Cam Newton, his present and his future with the Carolina Panthers. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And also a debate between WEEI and our friends in Baltimore as well from 105.7 The Fan. Who wins? This Patriots-Ravens matchup, Tom Brady and Lamar Jackson. This is as good as it gets in the NFL. We will debate who wins that after a quick break here on Home and Home. The unstoppable force versus the unmovable object. Patriots 8-0 at the 5-2 Ravens and Lamar Jackson on Sunday. New England a field goal favorite in what should be Easily the game of the week in the NFL. We can't wait for it. Let's debate who wins this one. One of the great things we can do here on Home and Home is go to our affiliates across the country, and we've got them both lined up. Jerry Coleman from 105.7 The Fan in Baltimore. Mike Mutnansky from WEEI in Boston. Fellas, appreciate you being here. It's Dave Briggs. It's Joe Shasky, the Butcher Boy. We can't wait for this game. A lot of smack talk back and forth. The surprising thing to me is the national media is loving the Ravens in this game. Every time I refresh my Twitter feed, someone's taking them not just with the points, but just to win this game outright. But what does the New England Patriots and that locker room who loves to put a chip on their shoulder, what do they make of the narrative? Uh, Dave, Patriot fans are used to it because uh, the national media wants the Patriots to go away. The national guys are picking them because they're sick of the Patriots, they're sick of Brady, they're sick of Belichick, they want a new story, and Lamar Jackson is a new story. That Ravens offense 
Looks like really nothing we've seen in the last couple of years in the NFL, maybe since Colin Kaepernick. And this has gone on for a long time. The next team on the block that looks like a team that could hit, beat the Patriots, the media wants them to win because they're sick of Brady. Dave, you know that. Come on. I do know that. I've seen that for many years, my time there in Boston as well. Uh, all right, Jerry. So Nick Boyle opens up his mouth, and I know we probably make too much of this stuff, but he says, we'll see how good they are once we play them. I don't think they've seen anyone like our offense or like Lamar. Now, that is a fact. They haven't played anyone. But was that a huge mistake for a New England team that lives for this kind of material? I don't think so, because I think they've heard this kind of stuff before. And it's probably not just the media that doesn't like the Patriots. It's probably most of the NFL fans out there, either out of jealousy or out of the fact that they feel like their team is better, which for the most part, they haven't been. Nick Boyle's comments, I think, were innocent. I don't think the Patriots have seen an offense like this. Certainly, Bill Belichick came out and admitted they've never faced a quarterback with the speed that Lamar Jackson possesses. I still think they're going to come up with a way to try and contain him. So it'll be interesting to see this chess match between the Ravens' offense and Bill Belichick's defense. That, to me, is going to be the most intriguing aspect of this game. All right, Mud, I got to ask you about Tom Brady. He's a local boy from Sarah High School here in San Mateo. So we've always kind of been watching from afar. We know he hates the 49ers for not taking him in the draft 20 years ago. But, but I'm watching this guy right now, and I'm saying something's just off. The passing game's off. He's not the perfect Tom Brady that I expect. What's going on with that offense? What do you mean, Joe? You take away Rob Gronkowski, a Hall of Fame tight end, and it's supposed to look the same? I, I think that's been the issue. People did not realize, even around here, how important Gronk was going to be to that offense. And so when you take away somebody who guarded so much attention there in the middle of the field, you had to put a linebacker on him, safety over the top. It freed up Edelman. It freed up Dorsett. It freed out backs out of the backfield. And so without him there, boy, it's been a lot tougher for Tom Brady. And the offensive line has been a big issue. Sunday night when they go to Baltimore, that offensive line has to play their best game of the year. Brady has been under pressure throughout. There's been a lot of throws, including last week in the win, where he's just getting rid of the ball, man. He's just getting rid of the ball because he knows he's in trouble. Romo made that point on the broadcast on Sunday. He called it a winning play when Brady threw it away instead of taking a sack. So I think it's a lack of Gronk, Joe. I think it's the offensive line that's been an issue, and they cannot run the football to save their life. It's going to be a major issue for them going forward if they can't start to run the football better. Jerry, we all know the one thing Bill Belichick does better than anyone in the history of this game is take away that one thing that you do well. Clearly, this is the one thing he wants to stop them from doing is let Lamar Jackson get around the edge. He's rushed for an average of 100-plus yards the last three weeks, but he's only thrown one touchdown, three interceptions over that span. So clearly, he wants to make Lamar Jackson beat them with his arm. Is he capable of doing that? I think that's going to be a very difficult task for Lamar, even being at home because of the fact that his best receiver, Marquise Brown, hasn't played since October the 6th, been limited all week in practice with this ankle injury. Again, he's the top offensive threat outside of Lamar. Who else does Lamar turn to? His other safety blanket has been Mark Andrews, the tight end. He's got Mark Ingram behind him, a couple of weapons to work with. But that's been the problem with this Ravens offense. Not enough weapons, even though they're running the ball as well as anyone in the National Football League. The passing game still has room for improvement. And that's why they need someone else besides Andrews or Brown to step up. Maybe it's Willie Sneed in the slot. Maybe it's a guy uh, 
who's come out of nowhere, like Hayden Hurst, a, a draft pick from a few years ago, who was taken in the first round, even before Lamar, who really hasn't done much since he arrived. Or maybe it's the other rookie wide receiver, Miles Boykin, who had a big 50-yard catch in Seattle a few weeks ago before the bye. But someone else besides Lamar needs to take hold of this offense. All right, Mud. I feel like we're, we're bearing the lead here because the number one fantasy player in all of fantasy football is the New England Patriots defense. I mean, McCourty, <laughs> Stephon Gilmore has been absolutely unbelievable. I mean, obviously, Belichick's now calling plays for the defense because Brian Flores is gone. But I want to ask you about Stephon Gilmore because here in San Francisco, we're talking about Nick Bosa for Defensive Player of the Year. And the only guy I can think of across the country who's even in the conversation is Stephon Gilmore. How good is he? And is he getting that same traction up in New England? I, I think he's very good. I think the the example I would make on how much traction he's getting right now, Joe, is that we were talking last night about this defense and how good they are. Statistically, they're on pace to be as good as that 2000 Baltimore Ravens defense. But then you start thinking about, do they have any Hall of Famers? And the one guy who right now on this team would garner the most Hall of Fame attention is Stephon Gilmore. They got him from Baltimore. Everyone at the time thought it was kind of a leverage play against Malcolm Butler. And Belichick didn't want to spend the money there. He has been awesome. He essentially takes away one side of the field. He's the best cornerback they've had since Ty Law. He's great in man-to-man coverage. He takes on fast receivers, big receivers. He's lined up against athletic tight ends before. He's a great tackler. He has really been everything that Ty Law was. That's as high as praise you can give a cornerback here in New England. And when that guy can take away your best receiver, uh, and maybe it is Hollywood Brown for the, the Ravens on Sunday, it makes life very difficult for opposing offenses. And he's been a big part of it, but the entire group has completely outperformed any of my expectations. I think most Patriot fans' expectations for you know what they've done. They score a touchdown, Joe, every week. It's been ridiculous. <laughs> Talking to WEEI's Mike Butnanski and 105.7 The Fans' Jerry Coleman debating who wins the Baltimore-New England game on Sunday. Jerry, it's been a simple schedule for this Patriots team, a winning percentage of 0.259 for their opponents. How good are the Patriots on defense? How bad has the schedule been? I think the schedule's been pretty poor, and I think a lot of people in New England would recognize their season starts on Sunday night in Baltimore. It's been a uh, tiptoe through the tulips so far in the first eight games. I think a lot of people feel that way. Ravens have played some lightweights as well, starting with Miami and then Arizona. Uh, they did lose to a Cleveland team that New England took care of. So that's been something that's been brought up all week here. But I'll remind people in Baltimore, the Patriots have won 13 straight going back to the postseason. They're still the champs until you knock them off. I think the Ravens are certainly capable of doing that. But the narrative has really changed over the years. It used to be the Patriots offense against the vaunted Ravens defense. And now it's flip-flop with the Ravens up-and-coming offense led by Lamar Jackson going up against this Patriots defense, which is on a record pace, as Mutt pointed out. All right, Mutt, as much as I want to talk about place kickers and get super geeky with you, let's be honest, nobody cares about kickers in the kicking game. Let's talk about Tom Brady. The guy put his house up for sale. Is this the final season in New England? Uh, I think unless Bob Kraft stands in, Joe, uh, and makes the call, I think it will be. There, there's been a lot there. And forget the house. Uh, forget the little breadcrumbs he's left, like Hansel and Gretel's trail this year about his happiness with the offense and wanting them to be better. He made sure last year that they could not franchise tag him this year. 
And I think that was the sign that, look, uh, I do not want to be beholden to what this team is going to do. There are going to be offers out there for him. I think in your neck of the woods, the Chargers are a team. If they clean house, they'd be interested. Get Brady back to, to L.A. to sell that TV 12 brand. His buddy Mike Vrabel coached the Titans. There's a big two or three year deal waiting for Brady out there. And I think Kraft wants to pay him. I don't know if Belichick does. They've had two years to get a deal done with this guy. And two years ago, they gave him this $5 million show me the, the skills, Tom, contract. Uh, and this year they couldn't get a deal done. So I think Bob Kraft, if he has his way, has the deal long-term, has Brady for three more years till he plays till he's 45. If it ends up being Bill's call, I think Bill doesn't want to pay a quarterback of Brady's age, 25, 26, $30 million a year. Would he play somewhere else and where? I think he would. And this is a guy that has been, uh, I think, the most, uh, one of the most uh, fierce competitors we've seen in our lifetime in sports. Six-round pick. I don't need to tell you guys the story again. But a couple of years ago, they drafted Joe, your guy, Jimmy Garoppolo. He saw the writing on the wall that they were sort of challenging him, and he played his best football he had played in the last couple of years. He, he's got this brand, TB12, that people around the league think is insane, that you should use these bands instead of weights. You should uh, drink a lot of water and do pliability and make yourself pliable. This is going to be his life after football, and he put his name and his career and his reputation on the line with this. I don't think he's going to be feel like he has to lock into the Patriots. I don't think he's scared of going to play somewhere else. I think he's very confident in himself. He's shown that in his career and in business. And if they want to ask him to take a pay cut or ask him to take a below market deal and the Chargers or one of these teams offers real money, like a Drew Brees contract, two years, 50 million bucks, why wouldn't he play somewhere else? He's He's been confident as anyone we've ever seen in sports. All right, Jerry, I want to ask you about John Harbaugh. I mean, I watched this guy go up against his brother, Jim, and my 49ers in the Super Bowl, and he just outcoached him. And he's won in such a variety of ways. He's had a statue quarterback in Joe Flacco. He's had really good defenses. Now he's totally changing the game with Lamar Jackson. Does John Harbaugh get the love he properly deserves around the league and in the city of Baltimore? I think he gets more love outside the city of Baltimore than he does here. He's been heavily criticized going back a year ago. A lot of people thought his job might be in jeopardy. In comes Lamar Jackson to save it going 7-1, and one, and they make the playoffs. He gets a contract extension, now one of the highest-paid coaches in the NFL right there with Belichick. Uh, this guy, for 11 years, has produced nothing but, but winners here in Baltimore, and he's a leader. And I think he has a lot better demeanor than his brother to deal with the players and deal with the fan base here. Uh, he's got tremendous job security. He's got a great rapport with the new GM, Eric DaCosta, and the owner, Steve Bishotti. So he's on firm ground here in Baltimore, as opposed to a year ago at this time when there were a lot of question marks about his future. They they had him get rid of his offensive coordinator, Marty Morningweg. He brings in an, another guy who's connected to the family, and Greg Roman, and we'll see what Greg Roman has dialed up on Sunday night for this team. All right. I hope we can stop being so cordial to one another. I want you both to say why your team wins. What's the, what's your prediction and why do they win? Mutt, let me start with you. Why do the Patriots kick the Ravens' ass on Sunday? I, I wish it was going to be an ass kicking. I think Patriot fans want to see that. But I think Jerry said it earlier. This is their biggest test, guys. And this is the first losable game they've had. It's losable because Harbaugh is a legit coach and Lamar Jackson is a legit quarterback. There are very few of those combinations in football. However, Bill Belichick is still a better coach than Harbaugh, and he is going to take away Lamar Jackson's uh, big plays in the running game and make him a passer. He never great completion percentage in Seattle. They still won the game. Uh, he will not throw the ball well, and because of that, 
big pick late, big turnover late. Patriots win. I think it's like 23-20, 20-17, somewhere in there. But they will make Lamar Jackson as one-dimensional as he's been all year. And he's not been a great passer the last couple of weeks. Jerry. Well, I know you guys don't care about kickers too much, especially with, with Steven Goskowski not around anymore in New England. Ravens have the greatest of all time right now in Justin Tucker. If it comes down to a field goal and they're within 50, 55 yards, they're going to win that game. Can Lamar Jackson make a difference on Sunday night? I'm very interested, as is every Ravens fan, to see what he can do against this defense because we've seen him get to the second level of defenses before. Can he do it against the Patriots? And I think that will wake up the entire NFL and the fan bases around there that the Ravens are to be taken for real. Hang on. I'm not hearing a definitive answer. Can he do it? You're, you're couching it a little bit. You're, you're straddling the damn fence. Will he do it? Yes or no? I did not pick the Ravens here locally. I did not. <laughs> I, did not. I have to be honest. He did. I'm not a homer. I'm just not. That's the way it is. I show my face every Monday at the complex, ask the coach all the questions that need to be asked. I have the Patriots winning. I could see the Ravens pulling the upset. If they do, like I said, they will have me as a believer. I'll get a hold of the bandwagon. I'll grab a handlebar and take them the rest of the way towards December. I think you got to suffer some humiliation, right? I mean, I think you need to really take your lumps if you picked against your team and they go win. Don't you, Mutt? Don't you think you need some abuse if that happens? There, I don't want to see Jerry. I don't want to hear Jerry on the air Monday taking a victory lap if Lamar Jackson doesn't <laughs> plays well. Because we'll play back this segment where he said, oh, the kicker is good, but they still might not win the game. So he doesn't, no credit if they win for Jerry. Absolutely zero. None. I won't, I won't be looking for credit Monday. I will not be looking for any credit because I'm already on the record here on Radio.com and on the local radio on 105.7 The Fan. The fans know where I stand and where I live, unfortunately. I, I'm on the record, too. I frankly think New England wins this by 10 or more points. I don't think Lamar Jackson has the arm talent to beat a Bill Belichick defense. Not this one with Gilmore and McCourty and others. And the last thing before we go, uh, McCourty did say the one thing he likes about this game is they don't like each other. Uh, Jerry, how much, I don't know if it's hatred, but how much do these two teams dislike one another? Well, there is some dislike. I think uh, the Patriots feel like the Ravens had a hand in Deflategate along with the Colts, so maybe there's some distrust there. But whenever Coach Harbaugh and Belichick are seen together at a lacrosse game, it's like they're holding hands and singing Kumbaya and roasting marshmallows by the campfire. But when they get to the stadium, it's completely different. Without Terrell Suggs around, though, to harass Tom Brady, I think this has lost a little luster. It's a new era with Lamar coming in. And Mutt, do you do you sense that these two don't like each other much? I get the sense that Harbaugh has been a baby in some of these games. Remember that game where the Patriots ran that formation and he's running out to yep. the refs and he's doing this. I mean, he, there's another play where he didn't know the rules. He was late in center to kick her out in the game in New England. I think the dislike is definitely more in the front offices and maybe the coaching staff than it is the players because there's no doubt the Ravens were front and center when it came to uh, Deflategate a couple of years ago. And Harbaugh has taken some subtle shots about the rule book and everything else, like the Patriots are cheaters. So that definitely still exists. From a player standpoint, I I'm with Jerry. I think it's more about the coaching staffs and the organizations maybe not being as friendly as they once were. All right, so Mike Mutnansky and Jerry Coleman both think the Patriots will win, <laughs> as do I. We appreciate you both being here. I hope you will appear on one another's program next week to talk about this one. Thanks, fellas. Appreciate the time.
And you'll Thank have you this back for the AFC Championship rematch, right? We'll be there. Uh, well, right. yeah, I mean, the Chiefs will be there, yeah. Yeah, that'll be good, Chiefs in New England. <laughs> oh, you can okay. watch Kansas City play in that one. No, thank you, fellas. We appreciate it. Look forward to the game as well. All right, uh, Butcher Boy, got to ask you your thoughts on this game. I, I, I just think the New England defense up against Lamar Jackson, I love watching the guy. I think he's electric. I think he's entertaining. I just don't think he has the arm talent to beat that defense. What do you think happens? Well, the strength of the New England defense is in the secondary. So I don't know if you want to throw the ball into this secondary. I think you want to run the ball a lot. Uh, that being said, I know Greg Roman. Believe me, Greg Roman was the offensive coordinator for Jim Harbaugh during the Colin Kaepernick era, during the Alex Smith eras. And every single big game, the offense just got completely bottled up. I mean, there's a couple here and there where they exploded. Uh, the Green Bay game, for example, where Colin Kaepernick ran for 180 yards. But he... He just he has a penchant for leaving you wanting more. And Greg Roman just he drives me nuts as an offensive coordinator. I give him a ton of credit because what he's done now is he's learned his error of the ways. He tried to turn Colin Kaepernick into a spread out all these wide receivers, pocket quarterback, when he should have just kept running the guy. You know, throw subtly, run the hell out of him, utilize his strengths. And he's done that with Lamar Jackson. It'll be interesting to see Belichick and the chess match that's going on here. But when Mutt was saying that Tom Brady's going to go to the San Diego Chargers or the L.A. Chargers in the offseason, I got to say, I had a major issue with that. There is no way in hell Tom Brady is leaving Bob Kraft and Bill Belichick to go play for Dean Spanos, the cheapest owner outside of Mark Davis in all of professional sports. Like, there is no way. I will bet my house here in San Francisco that there is no way in hell Tom Brady goes to play for the Los Angeles Chargers. I, I just, I will never believe that. No way in hell. I want to disagree with you, man, because it's better when we disagree and fight. But I completely agree with you. No way, no how he goes to play for that organization with that shitty fan base. They literally can't fill a 30,000-person stadium. And Brady's going to go play there. I think the only team he would go play for is San Francisco, but it looks like they've got a pretty good quarterback in Jimmy G because he got a great coach, great defense, good organization, better fan base, close to his home. Only Jimmy G is there. So, yeah, I think Brady, I think he calls it a career after this, after winning his seventh Super Bowl. Sorry for all the New England haters out there. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, the latest on left tackle Trent Williams and his holdout with the Washington Redskins. He did return to the team this week, but a stunning revelation about how the team may have kept cancer from Trent Williams, the prized left tackle who was yet to see any action this season. We're going to go to D.C. 106.7, the fan in Washington, D.C. Craig Hoffman gives us the latest and a very ugly public NFL dispute. You hear a lot in the NFL about player empowerment, about how guys have taken back the power, are able to get themselves out of unfavorable situations. Antonio Brown, Jadavion Clowney, Jalen Ramsey. But that rule really only applies to superstar, skilled players, pass rushers, maybe not to offensive linemen, a stunning story as related to the Washington Redskins handling of Trent Williams in just a sec. This is Home and Home, a radio.com sports original. We are brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Check out ZipRecruiter for free right now. It's ZipRecruiter. 
Enter. We'll also get into the Washington Nationals being used as an example for an NFL team. Bears coach Matt Nagy, he wanted to inspire his team, told him about the Nationals and how they can turn their season around. He's got a point, but can the Bears turn it around or will somebody else? We'll talk about that in just a bit. I'm Dave Briggs, home of Connecticut. We're joined by Joe Chasky, excuse me, the Butcher Boy, 95-7, the game in the Bay Area. We are coast-to-coast today. Ross Tucker on a plane out there for the Air Force and Army College football game. And let's dial in our man Craig Hoffman, 106.7, the fan in Washington, D.C. Craig, great to have you on the program. It's Dave Briggs. It's Joe Shasky. Trent Williams reports to the team this week after a season-long holdout, and yesterday a bombshell revealed regarding his medical situation. Give us the scoop. Yeah, so basically he revealed or confirmed in some cases. um, I mean, this is something that I've known for a while now but hadn't heard it straight from Trent's mouth, that he had cancer, Um, that the the growth on his head that was first reported on last – really, I mean – we knew about the surgery at the combine because Trent had posted a picture of him doing something at a hospital, getting something removed. His head was all wrapped up. We didn't really know exactly what it was. Um, so we knew that he got something removed. And then at some point in the spring, it was it was revealed that it was cancerous. There's other reports that have been out there that said it was benign. But I've known since basically June that it was cancer. And um, yesterday just really was clarity on, on how severe it was. And um, Trent even said at one point, which is, again, something that I've known for a while, but hadn't heard straight from his mouth, um, that he was told at one point to get his affairs in order, that the cancer had possibly spread from this growth, this tumor on his head into his his skull. And if it was in his skull, then it was possibly in his brain. And at that point, it's basically incurable and inoperable. So he was in a really bad spot, um, eventually wound up going to Chicago to get it removed. And luckily they found it, you know, in his words, just weeks before it had metastasized in his skull. And they were able to save his life and save his career um, because they didn't have to use radiation either. And then basically take out some of his skull and use a fake skull. And that would have that would have been the end of his career. So he was coming back yesterday only because he's been a smart businessman here. He's, he's making sure that this year counts that his contract doesn't toll or extend another year. He's trying to, you know, figure out his way pretty much to get on IR. Um, and then there's the whole physical situation, which is a mess. Um, the Redskins last night responded with a statement saying that they are going to try to commission along with the NFLPA a third party investigation of the things that Williams claims, because he claims that they ignored this thing that, that he asked them to look at it. He wouldn't. Um, and that, that his medical care was, was suboptimal or subpar, not acceptable. So um, I don't know exactly what this commission is going to do in terms of contractually and monetarily and all that kind of stuff, but um, they want someone else to look at this and, and they feel the team does that they didn't do anything wrong and they're going to wind up being cleared of all wrongdoing. Talking to Craig Hoffman, 106.7, the fan in D.C., with some fascinating information regarding Trent Williams, the left tackle's health status. I feel like this is a Nixonian and now Trumpian question, so apologies. What did the Washington Nationals know, and when did they know it? You mean the, the Redskins? Excuse me, the, the Redskins. Nationals did, know, did they, they, they know they, did won they the know he had cancer? <laughs> yeah, um, hang on. Did, did they know of this cancer? Uh. I would think so. Um, I don't know um, when they knew. Um, so basically, like the timeline goes like this. Six years ago, this is Mike Shanahan's last year in D.C. This growth right. starts to appear on Trent's head. 
And he has them look at it and they're like, eh, it's a benign cyst. Like, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. And at the time, that might have actually been right um, because it caused no pain. Obviously, it wasn't spreading at all. Otherwise, it would have ravaged his body in six years. Um, and a lot of medical people I've seen reacting on Twitter, which is the best place for medical information, uh, say that, you know, sometimes benign cysts can then become cancerous and malignant over time. So the first time he ever brought this to their attention was like six years ago. But last year is when it really started to bother him. Last year, um, it started to really hurt. The pain was becoming unbearable. And it got to a point that later in the year, he couldn't even put on a helmet. And so eventually at that point is when he's like, guys, this has to be looked at. Like, can we please just get rid of it? I don't care if it's benign, like I need it to go. And when they took it out, that is when, and this is still the Redskins team doctors and, and the biggest criticism of Trent and all this is that he never went and got a second opinion, but these are the doctors that he had trusted his entire career. And he took their word. And in his words yesterday, he said, when the doctors that I, I trust my career with tell me I'm fine, I'm fine. That's how I see it. And so he uh, gets this thing removed. They do a biopsy on it. And they realize, oh, crap, it's not only cancer, it's really complex. And it's this really rare form of soft tissue cancer. And that's when eventually he winds up going to Chicago to see the specialist, someone who, of all people, to recommend this doctor was Daniel Snyder, the Redskins owner, who Trent still has a lot of respect for. And, and on some level, thanks for saving his life. So he goes to Chicago and gets it, you know, this whole thing removed. He lost 30 percent of his scalp. Um, and, and that's, you know, why the helmet issue is the thing now, because his scalp is still recovering. There was nerve damage and this thing was really complex. But at, at some point during the spring, they knew it was cancerous. Um, the question is when and, you know, could they have known sooner? How much risk did they put him in? And I think that's going to be at the center of this investigation and ultimately decide who has the power here to, you know, exercise whatever they want on the contractual side. Uh, Craig, I, I just don't understand because when you – anything you do in life, you, you seek second opinions. And I understand you have faith in certain people because they've been your doctor your entire life. But something as serious as a growth on your head that's giving you pain, I, why wouldn't he seek a second opinion? That doesn't make sense to me. No, and it's a fair criticism and fair critique. And you know, people around Trent were telling him, like, dude, you got to go get someone else to look at it. But – as Trent said yesterday, at the time, it was kind of the answer that he wanted to hear for a lot of it. You know, things changed dramatically last year when all of a sudden it started to hurt because, you know, for the first four, four and a half years of this thing, it was pain free. It wasn't bothering him. It was just annoying and it was kind of ugly. Like, I remember seeing the thing on his head being like, that's weird. I guess it's just a growth on his head, whatever. Um, but like, I, I remember seeing this little like pink blob on his head um, last year. And, and so at some point it changed from possibly even being benign to being malignant and starting to hurt and cause him pain. And that's when eventually things turned and he, he like forced the issue, but him being told, eh, it's not that don't worry about it. You can keep playing was what he wanted to hear. You have to remember, this is a guy who played through a dislocated kneecap. His kneecap was popping in and out something that either of the three of us could not have walked or stood up with. He was playing pro football at a pro bowl, if not all pro caliber level in 2017. This dude's pain tolerance is outrageous. His dedication to football is outrageous. And so he, when he was told, like, this is, you know, it's fine, that's kind of what he wanted to hear. And so he never went to the, get that second opinion, even though a lot of people around him were like, dude, it's your head. Like, you need to go get this checked out. So once it started to become painful, that's when the, the, the tide turned. And that's when he eventually, you know, got it removed and, and left, you know, basically called his own shot. 
Just great information from Craig Hoffman, 106.7 The Fan in D.C. And it's been a bad couple of weeks for the NFL when it comes to their concern for players. Yeah, there's player empowerment when you are a shiny object. But when you, when you are Kalecio Semele of the Jets, who they cut because he felt he needed surgery to repair a torn labrum, when you are Russell Okung, who the Chargers cut his pay because he had a blood clot, a life-and-death issue for a lot of offensive linemen in the NFL, and now this situation with the Washington Redskins and Bruce Allen and Dan Snyder. And Craig, a question. He doesn't want to be there. He's 31. He's still a premier left tackle. He wants a new contract. He wants to be anywhere else. What we understand is the Cleveland Browns are pissed. They were offering a first-round draft pick. Why did they not trade him? Power. It's as simple as Oof. that. Like, this is this is a power play. Um, this became personal. This became vindictive between Trent Williams and Bruce Allen. And it's a lot of he said, she said, or he said, he said. Um, and, you know, the, the team says that Trent never laid out exactly what he wanted. Trent says, I told them exactly what I wanted, and it was to be gone. Um, you know, the, the, the contract side, which is almost separate, it just kind of, like, the medical stuff is, is separate and scary and also strengthened his resolve on being, in his words, the 10th highest paid player at his position with no guaranteed money. And especially when he's on the field to see Alex Smith go down last year, he didn't want to be playing with no guaranteed money. He didn't want the team to have that control. And so the Redskins have long had a thing where, on the last year of your contract, we'll renegotiate. Um, so for him, though, it, on a five-year deal, he saw year three as the last year. Like, all right, there's two years left. Yeah, but neither of them is guaranteed. So let's renegotiate now. I want guaranteed money. Just guarantee these two years. And the Redskins were saying no because they didn't want to set a precedent, even though Trent Williams is the best player they've had in a decade in a borderline Hall of Fame. So the fact that it became this power struggle um, is absolutely, I think, what this is about. And I, I can't fully speak from the team side of it because Bruce Allen never talks to any of us on or off the record. But I know because Trent said it into our microphones yesterday that he thinks them even opening up that 48 hour window for trades on uh, what was it Tuesday or Monday, Sunday, whenever it was that they, you know, kind of started calling around telling other teams like, yeah, okay, we'll make them available was a power play to say like, hell, Hey, look, we opened it up and nobody wanted to trade for you even though they were cutting off their nose to spite their face, because this is a franchise that has an asset that other people want. And then, you know, teams like the Browns were ready to give up a first rounder a long time ago. And by the way, they need draft capital. They are starting over. They're going to hire a new head coach and they traded their second round pick in last year's draft or in this year's draft for another first rounder in last year's draft to take Montez sweat. So they're already short high end draft. picks. So uh, it, it, to me, this is about power. It's about winning the public battle. Um, it, it's about all of that stuff, and it's not about maximizing assets or something where they think they're even – I mean, they think they're right, but um, I, to what end? Like, at what point do you just give up being right and say, hey, this is actually the best thing for our franchise because clearly this guy's not going to play for us. And I don't right. – they haven't gotten to that point. And I don't, I don't know what could possibly make them get to that point because they're – you know, Bruce Allen is as stubborn as they come. Well, Craig, I guess that brings my, my next question. I mean, Dan Snyder was a brilliant businessman. The guy made a billion dollars before he was even like 40 years old. He has unbelievable acumen in, in the field of business. How does he not realize that alienating his entire fan base at every single turn, not changing the name of the organization is alienating people? And then his insistence on siding with Bruce Allen, like, is he just going to stick with this guy moving forward? Where do they go from here, I guess? with Dan Snyder as the owner of the Washington Redskins. 
so first I'm going to disagree with your premise that he's good at business. Dan has been an <laughs> awful businessman. He got really lucky on timing once and made enough money to buy the Redskins. And I'm not, I'm not being like a jerk about it. It's just that it, those are the facts. Every single business he's ever had has failed miserably, except for one, Snyder Communications, which failed miserably about three months after he sold it. It, t- it cratered. He just got out at the right time, made a ton of money. He, he grew up a massive Redskins fan here in the area. He wanted to buy the team. He was able to. He got really lucky on the timing that when he made his money, um, Jack Kent Cook passed. And instead of just handing the team to his sons, they tried to work their way around some stuff and, and put it up for sale. And then the NFL, for whatever reason, picked Snyder and his ownership group over the Cook family and, and keeping it in the family um, when they were all continuing to try to essentially buy it from their own, their dad's estate. So. And obviously since, like, you can look and say, oh, the Redskins are really successful. They're worth $3 billion or whatever it is that the latest Forbes estimate is. But imagine what they'd be worth with better ownership. They should be worth $5, 6000000000 billion. They should be worth whatever the Cowboys are worth. And instead, this brand has taken a massive hit, which is a whole conversation for another day. But the other thing about Dan, to, to more directly answer your question, is he's incredibly insulated. And this is part of, I think, what the way Trent sees it is Bruce is manipulative of Dan. Bruce is, you know, he's incompetent in a lot of ways, but he's he's has some smartness to him um, and, and he knows how to manipulate the audience that he has to appease. And that audience is Dan and Dan alone. So Bruce always gets the last word with Dan. He's always able to, to tell Dan his side of the story and make him believe it. And so until Dan has other people advising him and kind of gets out of his little, very, very protected bubble where the Redskins are still glorious and, and everything is great and has people telling him like, look, dude, this guy's an issue. You need to get, fire him. You need to move on. You need to reset your franchise. You need to do business a different way. It's not going to happen. And just real quick to like the closest they've come to this was last year. They hired Brian LaFamina from the league to run the business side of it. Brian was able to get some of that stuff across and start to change the way the organization was acting on the business side. And the hope was the football side would follow. And eventually he butted heads enough with Bruce in the way that Dan sees things, which is very similar to the way Bruce sees things, which is to not treat people well, to just be as cutthroat as you can be like, Oh, this is all business. And Brian LaFamina and all the people that he hired that were doing all the positive things and getting all the positive reviews publicly were fired after nine months on the job. Woof. That's a lot to unpack. Craig Hoffman with us, 106.7 The Fan in D.C. Last question. At least you still have those world champion Washington Nationals. Talk to Kevin Millar early in the program from MLB Network. He said Steven Strasburg is elsewhere next year, perhaps in California. He feels Anthony Rendon stays down in Houston where he just won the World Series, goes back to his hometown team. Uh, You got the parade happening Saturday. Uh, Do you feel those two players are going to stick around town? I feel like Strasburg is going to stay. Um, he's really like the last year, um, the way he's been just embraced by his teammates has been pretty spectacular. And he talked about that after winning MVP, you know, the hugging and all this kind of stuff, the dancing in the dugout, like he's kind of grown up and, and matured in a way that has been really fun to watch. Rendon's interesting. Um, I don't know. I have no idea what to make a, of, of him. I think on some of this, it's on the learners. Um, will they sign off on a deal that they wouldn't necessarily sign off for Bryce Harper? Um, I think the way Rendon just played, the answer might be yes. Um, but I, I to go two for two there would be kind of impressive. I don't know whether they have it in them, but with all the money they just made and all the money they're going to make off the World Series, there's no way they should lose by being outbid. I, I think that would be pretty 
pretty big bummer. But they're they they are going to lose a lot, by the way. Um, they got so many guys on one year deals, and they went to some veterans. So the team's going to look different next year. But Shaw's and Rendon should obviously be the two highest priorities they have because they're the two biggest reasons they won the World Series. You gotta have those two back in the fold. Boy, was Strasburg epic in the postseason. Craig Hoffman, outstanding reporting there on the Trent Williams situation. Really appreciate the time on a Friday. Thanks, man. You got it. By the way, Dwayne Haskins probably is going to start this weekend, and it's the third biggest story in D.C. Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought? Who would have thought it? That you you might want to take the the opposing defense in fantasy football. That kid is <laughs> it's the Bills. Far. So yes, do that. Oh. Jesus, sign me up for the Bills. That is going to be a shredding. That kid is not ready. Craig Hoffman, good to see you, man. Appreciate the time. All right, in just a bit, we're going to talk about Cam Newton. Some interesting news coming out about him and his future and his present. Is he anywhere near a football field? But first, hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura CEO Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company. But he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. What did he do? He switched to ZipRecruiter. Could have just hired me. I know coffee as well as anyone. I drink nine cups a day. ZipRecruiter, though, doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience, invites them to apply to your job so you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter. He was impressed, nailed it within just a few days. Results like that, no wonder. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address. It's ZipRecruiter.com slash enter. ZipRecruiter.com slash E-N-T-E-R. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. You were up, Joe Shasky, Butcher Boy, doing post-game for the Niners last night after their big win, 8-0 now over the uh, Arizona Cardinals. How much coffee do you consume, brother? <laughs> lots of coffee. Lots and lots and lots of coffee. I brewed a big uh, big cup. I probably went to at least two or three cups this morning, but I'm a, I'm a drink coffee all kind of day guy. I, I, lots of water, lots of coffee, and then on Saturday and Sunday, Lots of Pedialyte to refresh my electrolytes, let me tell you, because that, that coffee can kill you throughout the week. You know that, man. Oh, dude, I consume way too much. I wish I could get through one day without three or four What's cups, but I am hopeless. Uh, I'll drink anything and everything, but preferably I'm just, I go back and forth between the cold brew at Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks. Gotta be cold brew. I don't like it hot anymore. I like it black. Really? I like, just that the, the cold brew gets me all fired up, man. You? <laughs> I'm going with the blonde, and I got a little bit of, like I said, got to have my almond milk, got to have my almond milk, and I'll get the blonde. I like the light roast stuff because the light roast has more caffeine. I learned from one of these crazy hipster, you know, techie bros out here that yeah. less, the lighter the brew, the, la the more caffeine it has. That's my understanding. I had no idea you learned something new when you talked to Joe Shasky. You also <laughs> learned something new when you followed Josina Anderson and Ian Rappaport on Twitter. Josina from ESPN reported that Cam Newton's visiting Dr. Anderson in Green Bay to figure out what's going on. And then Ian Rappaport tagged on to that reporting that, yes, hasn't played since mid-September and his sprained foot is not getting better. Uh, that Cam Newton hasn't done more than rehab on the side. And Ian Rappaport ends with this. Playing football is a long way off for Cam Newton. 
So it looks like Kyle Allen, perhaps in the short term and perhaps in the long term, do you think Cam Newton quarterbacks again for the Carolina Panthers? Man, that's an interesting question. His cap number next year is like, I want to say $20, $23 million, uh, which would be absorbable for a team like the Chicago Bears or I, I don't know. I'm just thinking out out, out loud, but yeah. Cam Newton is he's a guy that look, I, I love his style of play because he leaves it all out on the field. Is he accurate from the pocket? No, but he has squeezed every ounce of his body out into the game of football. And you got to have appreciation for that. The guy clearly loves the game. He's not a tactician. He's not a guy that's going to kill you from the pocket. But, look, he carried that Carolina franchise over the last seven, eight years since he's been there. I have a lot of respect for Cam Newton. I've seen what he does because he's come to Levi's uh, uh, Stadium. He came to Candlestick before that. I've seen how he treats children. I've seen how, like, he he treats his craft, and clearly he cares about football. Um, So I just have a lot of respect for Cam Newton. I'm not here to bash the dude. I I love anybody who gives their entire body to the game. The game is so violent. It's so difficult. It's so hard to get up every single week. And this dude at 6'5", 6'6", literally was going head-to-head with linebackers every single week. Yeah, he's not accurate on the underneath stuff. And, yeah, his mechanics aren't perfect. But, I mean, the guy guy is an entertaining watch. He's an unbelievable athlete. And it's it's sad if this is his ending because – in my eyes, I, I think he is the greatest Carolina Panther of all time. I mean, Jake DeLone, Julius Peppers, uh, maybe old man Kevin Green. Like, yeah. I don't know. Is he the greatest Carolina Panther of all time? No question. Uh, until Christian McCaffrey gets a couple years under his yes. belt in the MVP race. It's weird situations to be in if you are Pittsburgh, if you are Carolina, relying on two guys to come back from injury at this stage of their career. Better to turn the page draft one of these young, talented quarterbacks, but you're kind of stuck in limbo with two very high-profile, very highly-paid quarterbacks. Not a place you want to be. Last question, we're coming full circle to Halloween where we started this program. Um, Some of the suburbs around Chicago had snowstorms last night. They had to move trick-or-treating to Saturday night, which brings me to my point. Can we just stop with this bullshit and move Halloween to the last Saturday in October There is no religious significance here. It's maybe the only thing in the United States no one would be offended by. Can you agree with me here? Just move it. No more Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Halloween, last Saturday in October. I'm all for that. And while we're at it, while we're switching things around on the calendar, can we move the Super Bowl either to a Saturday or can we move it to the following week so we get that Monday off? That's a national holiday. I think it's President's Day or something like that. I should know what day it is. But, like, get me to the second week of February so that everyone has at least the day off. Or put the damn game on Saturday. There's no college. There's no reason this game should be on Sunday night. Is there anything worse than schlepping to work on a Monday morning after the Super Bowl? It is the worst thing in the world. Like, I'm all about rearranging the calendar. Let's do it. Why not? I mean, the Mayans were so ahead of the game anyway. Let, let's go back. Let's go through the calendar and let's figure this thing out. Yeah, baby. I, I am, again, I like to fight and disagree, but I, I, oh, what is the reason to not have the Super Bowl on a Saturday? Everybody's going to be happier. It's kind of the same thing as a parent with Halloween. My kids are dragging ass this morning. I have to see this four out of five years where they, they get up late. They had too much candy. Like, just make us all happy. Super Bowl and Halloween on Saturday night. Joe Shasky, Butcher Boy, you are welcome here anytime. 
appreciate Thank you, Dave. You're a pro's pro, man. I feel like a hack alongside you. You are the man, brother. You are welcome here anytime. Enjoy the weekend, my friend. Have a good weekend, everybody. We are out. See you Monday. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ucalypt speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023.